if I can quote. Rogan experience. The music's totally unnecessary, but but necessary at the same time. Anthony Bourdain is with us, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for coming by, man. This is cool as fuck. Oh, no, I'm, I'm happy to be here. I was, I've been looking forward to this. Me too, man. If somebody had told me that my favorite show, if you came up to me like 10 years ago, I said in 10 years your favorite show is going to be about a dude who eats in different places. I would have told you to go fuck yourself. I would have said that's the most retarded show I've ever heard in my life. If you told me 10 years ago that I'd be on television, I would have said the same thing. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the cool things about you, man. You're, I wouldn't say you're reluctant, but you're almost like an accidental celebrity. Like, you just got your book, Kitchen Confidential, just fucking took off. And then all of a sudden, you're this famous guy. Like Pretty you, much, yeah, it was like an overnight thing, for sure. One minute I'm standing next to the deep fryer, and the next, uh, you know, I'm selling books and, and get, you know, on, and on TV. I mean, literally, I think it was 44 years old. Wow, that's fucking wild. And, and I was not looking at anything. Uh, I had no higher ambition than to keep cooking where I was cooking, really, and maybe hopefully have the, you know, I, I wanted some kind of, Minor, I wanted to earn my advance back on the book. That was my highest hope. Wow. And it all kind of turned out real good. That's fucking nuts. What a crazy story. <laughs> it's very interesting because it's very rare that someone gets to live a full and intense anonymous life and then all of a sudden be thrust in the public consciousness. But actually, it's interesting. You know? It, it happened late at night. I guess I'd been in the restaurant business uh, for a long time. I think. My, you know, the level of bullshit that I can sort of live with in my life on a day-to-day -day basis uh, um, is pretty minimal now. So I, I was just, I, you know, I, I, I came at the television and everything else always with the attitude that, hey, I could be back next to the deep fryer tomorrow. So I'm just not taking it that seriously. It's amazing, though. I mean, it's, it's reality television in your case actually worked. It's like there's people that become famous, and you go, well, what the fuck is going on? I don't even know what Kim Kardashian's voice sounds like. I literally don't know what it sounds like. I don't think I've ever heard her talk once, but I've it's, seen it's her terrifying. everywhere. I know she is. But she, it's become like she's become a show. She's become a thing, an item, a, a program, the Kim Kardashian program. But in your case, it actually worked. Like they actually yeah, found some crazy chef dude. It, in a lot of ways, though, I think there's, there's some similarities, unfortunately. I mean, both... both shows mine and the kardashians are really you know my show's about me and 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 having fun and uh and, and taking advantage of the situation and in, in that way i probably have something in common with the kardashians <laughs> yeah you say that but you're sort of it's almost a self-deprecating thing like you're discounting all the different things in the way you're pointing out all these different things in these places you visit because that's what makes the show unique it's not just that you are in these exotic places eating these crazy fish in Brazil. It's, it's you know, you, somehow or another, they let a show on the air where they, they didn't fuck with it and they let the one voice come through. It, it, I've been really, really lucky. It's, it's, we've been a freakish anomaly, uh, first on Food Network for two years and for going on eight years now on uh, No Reservations on Travel. Um, it's been an amazing run because at every point, both networks, uh, for whatever period of time I was, I've been with, uh, been with them, they've let me do whatever I, I want. Um, they've let us make the show the way we want to make it. 
uh, do really fucked up things all the time. I mean, it's just there, there are some episodes that are like completely self-indulgent and, and fun to make, and clearly we're having more fun making them than than audiences might have watching them. What shows? Uh, like, which which show would you? Well, think we did a whole. Show. I mean, one of the shows I'm proudest of is the Rome episode. We're just sitting around all the shooters, the you know the camera people. That was a great uh, episode. Yeah, here's how it all started though. Camera people, assistant producers, me hanging around in some terrible hotel lounge, probably in Singapore, or Kuala Lumpur, or someplace like that. We're getting really fucked up on cocktails, and you know just talking shit the way people do. And I think one of the camera guys said, man, we are so fucking good. We are so good at what we do that I'll bet we could make food porn in black and white. And we all looked at each other and, and you know, yeah, dude, well, let's just do it. Well, they let us make that show. And, and we got away with it. And, I'm really, and we, I think we did it really well. It's a really pretty show. But, but if you, generally speaking, uh, I don't know of many other people on television lucky enough to be able to go to their, their network and say, we're going to do an entire hour of food-related television in black and white. And uh, it'll be a, an homage to Italian directors that none of our audience, have, or few of our audience have seen. Um, oh, and there'll be subtitles. Who gets away <laughs> with that? So we're having fun. And I think if, if anything makes the, the show special, it's that um, it's really first and foremost about me and the crew enjoying what we're doing, both creatively and just having a good time. And, uh, and that's really all we're looking to do. It comes through. That's why it's so fun to watch. It's it's so obvious that you guys are having a good time. Well, I mean, we fail a lot. I mean, there, there are shows where I'm really miserable and all this terrible, humiliating stuff happens to me. I, I don't set out to do that for, you know, viewer entertainment. That's genuinely me having a bad or, you know, sexually humiliating time. Like the one time when you were in Brazil and you had a horrible back pain? Was that when you, uh, you that flew into the jungle? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Audiences love seeing me, you know, injured, basically. That's comedy gold. So some of the shows that have been most fucked up and have been, just been failures in every, you know, where everything went wrong from, from beginning to end. I had a miserable time. It was just one, you know, a long week of, of, of bribery, extortion, and bullshit. Sometimes, you know, after you go back to New York and you edit, to put it all together, that, that ends up being a really funny show. We did a Romania show that made me like, I'm public enemy number one in Romania. <laughs> it, was, it was a national scandal. Uh, but it's a very funny show. Why was it a national scandal? It just uh, presented Romania in a, in, a, in a comical light that they did not appreciate, you know, because we had a really terrible time there. You know, everybody was, we try to shoot stuff naturally, you know, we don't, we don't like things to be set up for us. And so one of the first rules of the, of the, of the show is wherever we go, we don't want to see native dancers and indigenous garb, you know, some dog and pony show. We want, we want to sort of run and gun. We were foiled in every possible way in Romania. I mean, the, the government and the tourist people just sort of stepped in, and we were supposed to shoot with a humble butcher and his family. Somebody arrived at the humble butcher's house beforehand and said, your house is not pretty enough for American television. We're moving you to a, like a, a more attractive-looking farm. And by the way, you know, your kids are going to dress up in indigenous garb and dance and pretend they're happy. So it was this whole eerie, creepy, theatrical... Oh, wow. You know, from beginning to end, you know. That's got to be the the biggest trip. Is that you're going to places that that are fucking dangerous, man? Like you went to Kurdistan. I mean, you go you go to the jungles of Brazil. I mean, you go deep, man. That's a that's got to be a weird fucking way to live. Um, you know, I'm just like uh, having this late in life childhood of getting to go to all the places that I dreamed about and and uh, read about. You know, I you know I loved. I grew up reading books about pirates and and explorers, and so of course. 
given the opportunity, that's pretty much what I'm doing on the show. Wow, what a crazy change of life at 44 years of age. How much did you travel before then? Almost nothing. I mean, I'd been to France a couple of summers as a kid. Uh, I'd been to the Caribbean. That was about it. I mean, I, I was if, if I was sure of anything at age 44 standing in the kitchen, it was that I'd never see, you know, Saigon or, or Hong Kong, much less, you know, I probably I had no expectation I'd ever see Rome. So I'm just... Again, I'm just kind of living that out. And, and as long as me and the crew, as long as we're having as much fun as we are, at least finding ways to make like more and more fucked up television, as long as we can do that. Is the crew, is there any similarities with the crew as being like an actual kitchen? Like the gang of a kitchen? More like a band. I, I often talk like, like a, band. A, a band that's toured together for a really long time. And, and sometimes you, we, we rotate out personnel. But there's a core group, and you know maybe the bass player will go away for a while, but he'll be back, and whoever fills in for him is somebody else that we've worked with for years uh, around the world. So, you know, we all like each other, and and uh, and everybody's really really good at, at what they do, and you know that's fun. But you know, traveling with with camera guys who are really good at their job, that's a really uh, that's a satisfying thing. Gets it gets very intimate. Yeah, traveling on the road together. What is it? What, what's the number of people you travel with? Uh, with two camera people, a producer who also carries a camera, and a, and, a, and an assistant. So that's it, like four and there's, five people. There's the, uh, five, and we pick up like local drivers and stuff on the ground wherever we go. Wow. Now, how do you coordinate with like a place like Brazil? When you know, do you have to get a translator? There's Obviously, some, there's this entire profession of of people, uh, very strange, a mix of. Uh, other professions who've come together and basically they're called fixers. You know, you want to shoot, you want to make a movie in Moscow, you need a fixer, somebody who knows who to, what permits you need, how to arrange them, you know, hires drivers, knows who to bribe, that sort of thing. Um, there's one of those everywhere. Everywhere on earth, there's somebody who is available to fix for you. And if not, we reach out to like bloggers and um, particularly food bloggers in in whatever, because somebody's blogging about food, whatever city you're talking about in the world. Chefs, people who I, I uh, you know, the chef's mafia is pretty extensive. If you, if, you, if you know you're going to some place in, I don't know, uh, Southeast Asia, chances are you know a chef in New York who knows somebody out there. So there's that, you know, you, you already have friends when you arrive. That's got to be nice. That's got to be nice, but God, that's got to be a crazy way to live, man. How, how often are you on planes? Um, I'm traveling about 240 days a year. Oh my god! I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm either someplace else or in transit. Holy time. shit! So have you had the frightening, scary travel uh, airplane uh, ride yet? Like with the Dude. lightning storm and the, I like uh, turbulence. I know this is really like... fucked up, but I like turbulence. Do you take your belt off and choke yourself while it's happening? <laughs> no. <laughs> At this point in my life, it, it breaks up the tedium. You know, really? You know, when like laying there, especially after a couple of you know glasses of whiskey or something, you you hit turbulence and you see everybody else in the cabin freaking out. You kind of that's it's more entertaining than the in-flight movie, uh, and it does break up the the sort of soul-sucking uh, monotony of, of of too long in a, in a in a plane. And it's the best iPhone video too. You should always have your iPhone video ready to go for things like that when the people freak out on the plane. Right, oh, I've been right. doing it lately. I, I never thought of it before. And then recently, every time I, something crazy is happening on a plane, instead right. of just watching it, I've been filming it. And I'm you got anything collected. good? And eh, not really. It's really hard to. Jesus. So so the, it was too far wait a minute, away. And then you post this stuff. Or? No no no. I just collect it. I don't know you, what I'm gonna do with it. Really? <laughs> 
<laughs> make a terrified make a, plane passengers. Yeah, make a ten best terrified plane passengers. I don't think we should put that energy out there, fella. Yeah, I'll replace their faces with cats. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, then it looks like cats are mad. Well, if you were no not a, if you were not a person of interest to uh, <laughs> law enforcement, I don't know. I always will film, be. I always film on the plane because whenever I go on the road with Joe, I, I kind of do the same thing that kind of what you could do. You have a camera crew or a gang, but I pretty much do it for Joe. And like so, when we're on the road somewhere like Houston or something like that, I'm always having cameras. I'm always filming from even when he doesn't know I'm filming, like in the back of a car or in the back of a plane or or when we're at a comedy club. But it's 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 weird collecting footage because now I've become addicted to collecting crazy footage. Like I feel like I can't just go out and have a good time. I'm always like I gotta film this. I gotta film this. I think I have some kind of condition I need to get rid of. Well, the condition is the internet. You know, <laughs> the endless resource of inf- entertainment that the, that is the internet. I mean, I have a real problem. I can't even go to sleep at night. I sit in front of the box just clicking buttons. I just can't stop clicking. It's just like one more documentary, one more article, one more. What a fucking hypernova. It's going to kill everything. Holy shit. You know, one after the other. It's like... What were those sounds? Have you seen those YouTube videos of these weird sounds in different cities? Like... That's probably horseshit. If it's on the news... If it's, it's on, on the major news. news sites. It's on major news sites. Really? Yeah, I, I'll find it. I'll try to show you later. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> the earth is groaning. What is the scariest place you've been to so far? Oh, wow, I don't know, scary? Um, I don't know, I mean, in any country where there's there's really no infrastructure or no trustworthy infrastructure, I mean... Um, Do you worry ever that, you know, you become like a target? Um, there have been times when we've, on the show, uh, when we shot in Beirut in the war, in we, we got caught up in the conflict. There was a heightened level of paranoia about that sort of thing then, but, but uh, you know, it was ridiculous in the end what happened there you got caught up in a well we were there shooting a you know a happy Beirut show you know with no reservations and uh, went back to my hotel uh, ba- you know basically there was a border incident with Israel uh, some uh, Hezbollah had kidnapped some Israeli soldiers and basically uh, we got caught up in a war I mean wow. woke up or went home uh, one evening look out the window and there's the airport you know bursting at the flames and rockets and stuff coming oh, in and we realized you know we're not we're not we're not getting out anytime soon. So th- there was, of course, on the part of the you know people who uh, security you know security guys who got involved in trying to get us out of the country. Yeah, we had to think about all of that sort of you know t- possible target sort of stuff. Again, it's uh, it's silly, and I don't think any of us took it took it took it seriously ever. I mean, so, you know, who who would target a you know host of a dipshit little travel show, you know? Well, I think some people in some parts of the world would be really desperate, but um, so that was the worst situation that you were ever in. The that, situation? That actually was the saddest. No, I think the, the scariest are probably places uh, Liberia. Uh, you find yourself in where people are desperately poor um, and hungry, uh, and, and there's no law and order at all. Uh, you know, a little situation in a market can turn into a, a really ugly situation. You know, those are probably the most realistic threats we've ever ever faced. It just, you know, you know, large groups of hungry people behave like hungry people do, and uh, so there have been some dodgy moments there. But that's about it. There's a great online documentary show uh, called The Vice Guide to Travel. Have you ever heard? Oh, of it's it? yeah, it's terrific. Yeah. Well, Did you ever see their episode on? I Liberia? saw the Liberia episode. <laughs> it was it was a little lurid, but but it wasn't. False. It was a yeah. it was a true picture of uh, 
you know, we told the truth about about uh, about Liberia for sure. That's a great way to describe it. I mean, they obviously went after the juice, but I mean, well, if you're looking for for juice, you Jesus. you'll find it. I mean, uh, General, they think they were with General Buck Butt naked. naked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Folks who don't know who he is, he's a guy who shoot goes into a battle naked. Except and, for his boots. Except for his boots. And, he, and an he's killed the enemy's babies, and he drinks their blood because he thinks it makes him immortal. And he's admitted to this. I mean, Bad this guy man. is like, I mean, it's crazy. So, so yeah. And now he's a preacher. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought he was in the government, actually. He's a preacher now. I, th- I believe he's a preacher. Yeah. Yeah, I, be- I believe he's a It's a very surreal, uh, it, it, it's... It's uh, that, that in many ways the history of that country uh, resembles a really bad acid trip, you know, like, you know Manson-esque. It's uh, they were American slaves that were brought back to Africa. Is that what it was? Uh, yeah. Long story short, uh, Liberia was I'm going to say founded, but it was it the nation was created by freed slaves, part of a back to Africa movement, um, and they arrive. People essentially, who'd been taken from all over Africa, uh, you know, were were returned to Liberia, a country that none of them really had roots in, and they became sort of an aristocracy and, and based their country entirely on the American model, you know, very red, white, and blue. So it was in many ways this this little America in Africa, and then things went really, really bad. Whoa, Africa fucking freaks me out. We're, we're going in a few weeks. We're going, to, we're going to Mozambique next. Are you ever going to go to the Congo? We try every year. It's like this fantasy for years. Do you really? Yeah, I, I, want to, I want to do the whole Joseph Conrad, you know, Heart of Darkness thing. I'm obsessed with going up the Congo River. But okay. every time we take a serious look at doing it, we schedule it every year. But every year we get the same security reports. Like, no way, you know. Yeah, it's a very, very volatile place. You know, that's where they found that giant chimpanzee. Do you know about that thing? Uh, no, no. This is where I want to go. There's a chimp in the Congo. I mean, I would never go. <laughs> if you had a force field. <clears throat> yeah, if I had a force field. There's a chimp in the Congo called uh, a Bondo ape. It's a uh-huh. new chimp that they've discovered that nests on the ground like a gorilla. They walk upright. They're over six feet tall. They're like 400 pounds. I don't want to see this, man. Oh, Not a fuck. Are you kidding me, <laughs> just man? Just draw it for me. I just remember. The locals I... call them lion killers. They I don't doubt it. Two different types of chimps. There's tree beaters, the regular chimps, and then there's these gray lion killers. They're a real chimp. Can you imagine a six foot tall gray jaguar eating chimpanzee? They've caught them eating jaguars. And this is a real chimp. They have photos wow. of this fucking thing. They haven't been able to capture one alive, but they have photos of uh, some guy shot a shot a giant one near an airport up there. I want one. Could I, could I have one working for me? Like, I mean, it's a giant killer chimp in a diaper, you know, yeah, like <laughs> coming out to nightclubs with him. Like that lady in Connecticut. Well, that's it. what I'm thinking about. That's why I, monkeys, especially chimps, there was no love between me and, and the monkeys because that, that story, this giant craze like Valium, he just kicked Valium or something, the, the monkey, and the, so, the, yeah. excuse me, the, the chimp, and then like gnawed somebody's face off, right? Yeah. Oh, it's like, just was, that's a pretty horrifying story. Well, they can just decide to do that at any time, too. I mean, they, yeah. they don't, but they could just decide to just fuck you up anytime they want to. And they can. And, and it's not even, like, bad in their culture. Right. The, the culture of chimps, you're supposed to be fucking each other up. They do it all day. Right. They don't understand our world. Our world of not fucking people up all right. the time. They try to keep it together. Yeah, I don't. I don't want any pet that throws feces at me. You know, yeah. I do. Do you? Speaking <laughs> of pets, have you ever come across any crazy animals or any weird threats, like in in any places? Like when you go to the Brazil and you're in the mm. jungle, 
I mean, the jaguars are like a real threat out there, right? The closest threat from the animal kingdom we've had, we were in uh, Ghana, I think, and we, the, the idea was we were going to go all the way out in the middle of nowhere, this tiny little uh, game park or camp, and, and the whole idea was we'd have to get up super early and drive like four hours in bouncing Land Rovers in the hope that maybe if we're lucky, we're going to see a herd of elephants and get to shoot some. We, we, we wake up really early in the morning, and the, the camp is infested with, with elephants. If, if you could be infested with elephants, we were, they were just everywhere wandering around right outside. So, of course, we did what, what any shooter would do. You, you run outside, and you start shooting the hell out of these fucking elephants. It's a good shot. Wow. <laughs> so we're doing this. And we're like, dude, okay, let's get a good shot. Let's, you, and, you, you close in on it that way, and I'll close in on it that way, we'll, and we'll basically herd the elephant towards the camera. Right. At which point the game warden wakes up, you know, shows up our guide and says, step away from the elephant, you know, like walk slowly backwards. We'd done everything wrong. We, these were young male elephants. They're fa- they are the fastest moving creatures, I think, in the wild once they get going. Oh. And uh, they hate bright, like bright shirts, which of course we were wearing. Uh, they don't. They're spooked by people holding implements, uh, which, of course, that's what we were doing. And they particularly don't like being herded by people one, you know, thousandth their weight, <laughs> and, are, and are likely, you know, likely to charge at any point. So apparently, that was we we'd come close to doing something fatally stupid. How were you guys so bold? Yeah, so I mean, you seen stupid that is the word. Were you drunk? You guys were sober. You've um, never seen that elephant bashing the guy video that's on the internet. Um, that's an important point. Were you drunk or were you sober? I mean, we're certainly drunk and stoned, and stoned a lot on the show, but, but <laughs> I think no, we woke up and and we were stone sober first thing in the morning. Wow! I mean, what a crowd! The, 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 the camera back. people are really right. suicidal. I mean, they, one of our guys, both of them actually, when we were shooting in Kurdistan. They're hanging out the hatches of these, uh, you know, Russian cargo helicopters. Hatch open. They're all the way out. Oh. You know, you're getting these cross drafts and, and humps from, you know, updrafts where suddenly you're at zero grab, you know. So you're, you know, it's just, uh, they, they do crazy shit for, uh, for a good shot. They, they really don't have a lot of sense. There's nothing freaks me out more than those planes with the holes in the back. Those cargo jets in every Schwarzenegger movie. Yeah. Yeah. You've been in those? Oh man, we've been in everything. If, if it flies or 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 moves on water, or we've we've, <laughs> we've been there. Wow! And so over ten years, how many different countries have you visited? I, I think it's over a hundred. Wow! A lot. God a lot. Damn! So your passport has more than one. Like my mine has Canada. I'm on my has. I'm on my third passport in in, in ten years. I think it just. Wow. They, they can't even put in any more pages, and then you got to get a new one. It seems like you should have a shorter line for security. <laughs> I'm really, I'm really good at security. I got one of this. Um, you know, they talk about how uh, cops will talk about how they can identify a, an ex-con very easily because when they're rousted, they relax, they go limp, they they don't get, they, they don't they don't fight back. They're they're trained to sort of deal with with that kind of relationship. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I completely forgot my point here. <laughs> that's all right. That's interesting enough. That's a that's a, a funny point that someone would be used to someone someone oh, frisking them. That was the, so. I go into that same sort of relaxed. I'm, a, I'm such. A, I'm a professional traveler. I just sort of relax, go limp, just and try to bliss zen. out as I go through this really enraging process. My friend Tony V is a stand-up comic from Boston. He said this to me once. He was traveling from Boston to uh, New York on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Like, 
good three hour drive if you're lucky. And uh, I said, I'm like, how are you doing that? He goes, I just go zen. When I'm in the car, I just go zen. This is what I'm doing right now. I don't yeah. let it upset me. Airports in particular, because it's futile. You know, there's no, there's, shit goes wrong. You will end up sleeping on the floor. Uh, it, and, you know, no matter how crazy and berserk you get about the situation, you're still going to end up sleeping on the floor. Well, is that Nothing what in pick. transit is about? What is this in transit thing that you're doing? Well, I mean, it's, you, you learn a... You learn to adapt. I guess. You're doing like a new show. Uh, right? Oh uh, yeah, the it's called uh, t- Layover. Layover. Oh, yeah. I thought it was in transit for some reason. <laughs> um, uh, that's my 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 head. So what what is that show? Is that about um, it's sort those of, experiences? Um, no reservations has always been about sort of me having a good time or trying to have a good time, and this one's a more we're trying to actually be a little useful, like provide some information experiences that you you could do. Whereas no reservations, that's always been a second, you know, secondary consideration. We just we do a lot of shit on no reservations that you, you just can't do. They're, uh, you know, they're out of rate, out of reach of, of anybody's expectations. I think any reasonable ones. So this is more about if you're stuck in a place or you find yourself at a place for like 24 or 46, 48 hours. Um, it's just you know good shit to do. So are you filming it, piggybacking it on No Reservations? No, we, we took a break in uh, No Reservations and went out and shot a whole hell of a lot of these all in a really short period of time. I, it, was, it was actually brutal. So, so you're doing two series at the same time then? No, we broke from No, no Reservations, uh, so banked like 10 episodes of, uh, of uh, Layer. But I mean, you're going like one to another, boom to boom. Yeah, That's insane. That's an insane amount of work. Yeah, but I mean, thing, what am I going to do? It's it's. Uh, got to take it while fun. it's good. Yeah, take it while it's good. I mean, I, it's this is not a, this is not a gig that you can say. You know, I'm just going to take a couple of years off. Go you know, go to an ashram and you know, <laughs> find myself. Uh, then, but I'll be back. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, no, and, and uh, no, yeah, I have the best job in the world. I'd be crazy to 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 not milk it for everything I can. Are you yeah, still writing so. at all? Because I know that yeah. your one book, Kitchen Confidential, is like the Bible in most kitchens. Most most chefs I know all have that book. Like every time I go to their house, I see that book. Uh, are you? Did you continue to write on the side? Yeah. You know, while you're on planes or? Yep. And and I'll take some time off to write. Uh, but yeah, every couple of years, a book. Uh, just did a comic book. They'll be out next year. Oh, no way. A comic book for a Vertigo. Yeah, it's an ultra-violent uh, sort of, a, <laughs> sh- of. I don't know what you'd call it. A futuro satirical uh, slaughter fest in a, in a, in a sort of a, a near future where where it's all about food. People kill each other over ingredients oh, and cool. ideology. Really? Yeah. It's real. Like illustrate. Awesome. It's it, the art is going to be amazing. So did you write it? Do you, are you I co-wrote it with uh, I, I uh, co-wrote it with a friend of mine, a really great writer named Joel Rose. And it's uh, we're kind of describing it like Yo Jimbo or Fistful of Dollars, but uh, but all about chefs. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. Now who's illustrating it? Uh, a guy named uh, Langdon Foss, and he's a terrific, terrific artist. How does one come up with the idea to start their own comic book? Uh, well, we, we just, you know, we sold this concept and, and uh, they were interested and they said, we'll make it happen. I'm doing it because it's fun. That's awesome. You know, I, I just, it's, again, it goes back to the little boy thing. Yeah. You know, if, you can, if you could do a comic book, you know, what little boy wouldn't? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no shit. You know, I, used to, I love comics. I love comics still. So. I had a dream the other day that I went to a comic book store. 
And then I started getting into collecting comic books, and I brought it home. And my wife was like, "Really? <laughs> you're gonna you're starting to buy comic? I think I'm gonna buy comic books again." Did you ever have to sell <laughs> your comic collection growing up at one point? Because I, I did, and I, Joe did. I and... sold them all for drugs, actually, oh. late, <laughs> late late in life. You know, so I knew, I was the sensible kid who kept my collection. You know, so I had a very good comic book collection. But uh, you know, cocaine is a powerful drug. <laughs> it's, I've managed to avoid that one. Yeah. The one I managed. I, when I was a kid, I had a, a friend whose cousin was selling it, and he for like. Over a course of one school year, he completely changed. He lost about 15, 20 pounds. His face got sunken in, and him and his girlfriend would just hide in their attic apartment, right. do coke, and watch TV. And I was like, okay, whatever the fuck that is. <laughs> right. The blacked I'll out room, you know, the, the, yeah. the foil, you know, over the windows. Yeah. yeah. They got creepy. It was just very strange. I was like, they're like, they're infected. It's like they got bit by a vampire yeah. or something. Yeah. You know, like, Breaking, Breaking Bad does that really well uh, on that show. They, yeah. with, every time they, they go to like, you know, meth head uh, apartments, the, the set decoration, they, they really got that right, you know. That show's fucking great. Yeah. It'd be so fun decorating <clears throat> those sets. Like, I like Doritos. I bet these people like Doritos. Just throwing Doritos exactly. over, you know, like, like staining sheets. Has anybody ever given you shit for shooting animals on the show? Um, I mean, I'm, PETA do not love me, I'm sure. Uh, I mean, we do get mail from vegetarians. Um, you know, I shot a pig a couple of weeks ago on the show. Yeah, great episode. And, thank you. Um and, you know, of course, people people who eat pork were saying, you know, there was no need for that. That was, you know, completely offensive and ridiculous that you would do that. What, someone actually said, I guess you did it for ratings. Well, you know, is there a huge demographic out there? You know, I need to see more pigs shot yeah, in the right. brain. I need to see more. I want to see some more animal cruelty. No, it was we, we did it because it's part of a process that that uh, a celebratory process, a tradition. And I, I was offered the honor of doing the deed and I thought it would be hypocritical to not you know I'm I'm responsible for the death of the pig because we're making a TV show about a, a about a party where we kill a pig and eat it so e either somebody else is going to do it or I'm going to do it and I just said you know fuck it I'll do it do you get sick a lot with all the different foods you eat have you ever found any food allergies nice. that you didn't know you had by no. like eating anything crazy yeah. that's a that's such an important point man what it's it's a weird thing that people have where they think that somehow or another if you don't kill the animal that you're not responsible for its death. Yeah. It's, you know, that you're not somehow or another. Be, just because you don't get your hands dirty in getting the meat at the supermarket, you're not responsible. It's the same right. fucking thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't make a point of going out there. I don't want, you know, we need some more footage of me looking manly, you know, shooting, right. you know, bringing down a deer. Um, it wasn't like we, that we at all. We try to, you know, avoid that. But on the other hand, if you have, we've had a lot of animals slaughtered for our meal uh, around the world because that's, what they do in a lot of cultures, you know, when you're a guest, it's you know, kill the lamb. Uh, yeah. So eventually, uh, you know, every once in a while, I will actually have to kill an animal myself. I don't. I just, you know, I'm not a hunter. I would never hunt for sport, for instance. But, you know, I do eat meat and I do eat this stuff. And, um, you know, I'm, if I'm going to be cool with other people shooting an animal, I mean, I may as well do it myself. I just, uh, one of the first episodes that I ever saw of your show, you'd shot a deer in England. I was terrified. That was, I was absolutely terrified. Really? I thought my worst fear was, oh, I'm going to hit this thing in the stomach or something. And oh, it's going to, yeah. you know, long, painful, horrible. I would have totally freaked out. Right. So, yeah, I was, I felt very, uh, was relieved. that the first time you ever shot anything? It was the first time I shot anything that big. And, it was uh, one of the first episodes that I saw. And it's one of the things that got me hooked on the show because I was like, 
well, this is real. Like, you just shot this fucking thing, and this guy rubbed a, a, a blood cross well, on that, your forehead. Well, that was Marco Pierre White, who's yeah. one of my was one of my heroes. Like, back when I was cooking, we'd all stand around in the kitchen looking at Marco Pierre White's book saying, you know, that is the rock star. They know, that's the guy we all want to be like. And so suddenly it's 10 years later, and Marco's taking me out hunting, and... and you know, I didn't want to fuck it up. You know, he's letting me his <laughs> rifle. He was my hero. Saying, there he is, Anthony. You know, nail him. That beautiful one there. He had the head actually uh, mounted for me and uh, uh, had the animal certified. As, that, that's a silver medal, Anthony. He was very proud of me. Did you get any rifle lessons or anything before that? Or did you know how to aim? Uh, a Boy Scout camp, you know. It's <laughs> really? I, just, I shoot a lot on the show. There's a lot of... Not just... You know, it's fun. I mean, when you travel, who doesn't like standing there popping off endless rounds of ammunition at a target <laughs> or something like that? So we do a lot of target shooting. Um, local firearms is something of a, of, a, of a continuing or recurring theme on the show, too. <laughs> Alcohol. Come on, I mean, there's a bar in, in, in Cambodia that's really famous that, that you could basically go to and just get fucked up. They give you liquor for free. You pay for ammunition by the round. I mean, that's... Come on. That's, in what society would that not be fun? <laughs> Getting really fucked up and shooting targets while drunk with like 50 caliber machine guns. Jesus Christ. Whew. Parts of the world, man. God damn. <laughs> Is bone marrow uh, still your favorite? Have you found it? I like it. I, a lot. I thought I read somewhere you, it was like bone marrow and bread is your favorite meal. Yeah, I would like that. Roasted bone marrow. I should try it sometime. It's just smeared a little toast. Good shit. I've had bone marrow. I like it. It's good stuff. Remember we had that shit in uh, Portland? Yeah. It's, it's delicious. Like very fatty though, right? Yes. It's, it's very mostly fatty. fat. Yeah. Something. I don't know, man. It's it's very it, I don't know, it's delicious. Melts in your mouth. That, yeah, we we don't travel nearly as much as you do. You do know, you travel a lot? Close. I do. I do, but it's mostly just cities. City and I mean occasionally I go out of the country. You know, I do shows in England and we do UFCs in England and we always try to find Fogo. Every city. That's why it's Chow. What is it like having a wife who's a crazy UFC nut? I've <laughs> seen some UFC nuts, dude, uh-huh. but your wife is oh, over really? the deep end, man. Yeah. She's she trains, she does jujitsu and she does Muay Thai too, doesn't uh, she? She does Muay Thai in the mornings and uh, uh, grappling and jujitsu at uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu at night. It's with uh, Enzo Gracie. Enzo Gracie, yeah. yeah. At uh, at his studio. And she it, it it makes her happy, and she's really, really into it. And, um, you know, I sort of live in fear, actually. My greatest fear <laughs> is that, you know, she's just waiting. You know, some over-enthusiastic fan, you know, some some drunk chick with hair extensions is going to step in between the two of us, at, you know, while we're having a drink. And my wife's going to choke her out or some shit, you know? I'm, I'm, you really I'm, worried about that? She's going to hurt somebody one of these days. Do you think she wants to, secretly? I, she's, she's spoiling she's planning for, for it. She's, <laughs> I said she, I'm, we're, we're, very, we're very proud at the Bourdain household that uh, my wife, uh, a couple of months ago, <laughs> choked out her trainer. He blacked out before he could tap out. Really? Yeah. Wow. So she's just fucking nuts for this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. She's wow, that is so... It's all about the grappling, which, which you know, it makes it tough, though, because we'll go out to dinner at, like, a, a really nice French restaurant, and she'll wear, like, a low-cut gown, and, of course, she's got, like... Blue and yellow fingerprints all over her body, and these giant bruises that she's all very proud of. You know, That's everyone hilarious. in the restaurant's looking at me like, "You son of a." <laughs> 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 
it's, oh, it's really awkward. Yeah, you try dating a kickboxer, black eyes and shit, walking around with bloody noses. But, yeah, but but she 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 loves uh, watching the, the the sport, but I think uh, way more she likes taking part in. Wow, and how long has she been doing this? About uh, about four years now. So she just got hooked four years ago and just dove right in. When when she does things, she tends to do it in a serious way. She's a very enthusiastic so, woman. Yeah, it was fun. It was fun watching. I really love watching people who who really enjoy the sport and really appreciate and understand it. And you get to see that, you know, like your wife is one of those fucking people that throws her arms up. Like, oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's like, she's a serious UFC fan. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm getting into it just entirely because because she's into it, and it's you know, it's a lot of fun. I was a, a, a boxing fan for sure, but but the, you know, the, this was all new to me. So I basically I have to ask her, hey, is this guy any good? Oh yeah. Once you figure out who's good and who's who's interesting, and you know you, you watch a few good fights and you understand the rivalries, man, then then it's inescapable. It's just too exciting. There's I no, love uh, I love the Anderson Anderson Silva fight recently. Yeah, yeah. that was that. Okami, yeah. The whole when he put his hands down, yeah. that whole Ali Ooh. thing was. Uh, the, I thought the fight was over then. He just yeah. totally got in the other guy's head. Yeah. It was such a contemptuous thing to do. Yeah. Um, well, he gets his timing. What happens with Anderson is Anderson, he's like calculating you. He's figuring out, he's stepping inside the danger zone and outside and trying to figure out what your instincts are, what your reflexes are. And then he realizes that after like 15, 20 seconds, you're going to slow down. And, you know, like 45 seconds mm-hmm. of the first round, guys start to slow down. Two minutes, three minutes in, they really start to slow down. And that's when Anderson starts to pile it on. He's like calculating your abilities. And then he can just get right in front of you and put his hands down, and there's nothing you can do about it. Right. It's got to be the most horrifying feeling in the world to be locked in a cage with a magician, you know, a dude who can hit you and you can't hit him, and he's very confident, and he's locking in on you, and you know he's got you timed and figured out, and then he just starts popping off on you. That was a really impressive fight, though. He's an amazing that. athlete, man. He's, he goes down, in my book, as one of the all-time great athletes. You know, like the, the Muhammad Ali's and Sugar Ray, Sugar Ray Leonard's and all the Roberto Durant's, all the greats of the past. I think Anderson Silva goes right in with him. You know, obviously different sport, but the, the same thing. That, that, that super athlete, that, mm-hmm. that guy that can do things that other people just can't do. I'm, I'm always, you know, Ali was a personal hero, you know, for me. I just, uh, as, a, as, a, as a fighter, as a personality, as a, as a, as a leader, mm-hmm. uh, I, I just... Uh, really looked up to him still look up to him it's very unfortunate what happened to him you know I mean you, you t- want to talk about a guy who was this incredible speaker who was so fast and so fluent so sharp and the way he could talk and the way he could break things down and, and the way he I mean his ethics he stood up for this fucking Vietnam War and he said you know what man no, no Vietnamese ever did nothing to me yeah I'm he, not going over there uh, you know I, I, I put him up there with like you know Jefferson and, uh, and Lincoln and uh, you know I, I just see him as a really a, a, a great one of the greatest uh, and most heroic American icons I mean certainly sure especially around the world respected and uh, looked up to uh, have you seen the film uh, When We Were Kings yeah yeah, it's just amazing, amazing. I, I cry like a baby at the end of that film every time it's an amazing film then, then that's the film where Hunter S. Thompson was hired to go <laughs> right. and he was so upset because he was an Ali fan he knew Ali was going to get killed that he just just took drugs and floated around the pool with a Nixon mask on and missed the whole fight. 
just get drunk. Dr. Thompson, a, a, another personal hero, but uh, Mine too. I think a sadder story. Yeah. You know, than, you know, I mean, people say Ali's happy now. Really? So... I, I don't, you know, I don't think that Thompson clearly was was a happy man. Well, for, Thompson was in a, a lot of pain time. too. You know, he had a hip replacements, <clears throat> and that's uh, that's br- brutally painful for some people. He had like a lot of physical ailments, and on top of that, his body was just so beaten down from the daily boozing. I mean, he just yeah. would pound it daily. You know, obviously, I, mean, I think anybody who reads my stuff, you know, I was, uh, you know, I'm shamelessly. Uh, uh, a student of or an enthusiast of, I mean, of uh, Hunter Thompson's early work. I really, you know, when that stuff came out on Rolling Stone, I remember, you know, running to the store to, to get Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas serialized. Uh, life-changing. Yeah. You know, but I, I don't, that's a guy who, who sort of peaked early. And I think he had a very hard time for the rest of his career after, I think, probably Fear and Loathing on the campaign trail. I think he was a guy who was clearly struggling with writing for the rest of his life. Well, I think you you just can't do that to your health and not struggle creatively. You can't do that. You can't just poison yourself. You can't do coke day. and write. For, yeah. That's for sure. You can't do coke and write? No. No? Maybe two sentences. <laughs> and then what will happen? You'll either keep writing and it'll be utter and complete shit, or you'll find some way to not write at all. Uh, embarrassingly, I wasn't. I didn't know much about Hunter S. Thompson until I was in Seattle once. I was staying in a hotel room. And I had a layover, and uh, I just nothing to do, just flipping through the pay-per-view movies. Gonzo, Life and Worth, Life and Times of Hunter S. Thompson, I think it's called. Yeah. I watched the documentary. I went, holy shit! You know when they show how he fucking when Ed Muskie was running for president, yeah. he started writing fake stories about the guy being on ibogaine and bringing right. in and exotic Brazilian doctors, <laughs> right. and he made up names for new drugs that you know a dude was on something called Wallet, right. some new some <laughs> new right. form of this speed. stuff actually found its way into the into the straight media. Yeah, and, uh, they had to defend themselves. He gave some homeless guy his press credentials, his I think his White House credentials. Really? Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's it was out some epic stuff, but I think uh, he did some awesome you know, shit. If you if you read some of the stuff uh, in some of the lines in uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, it was a very romantic, uh, sentimental side. He wrote some beautiful sentences about how his hopes were smashed forever by, uh, yeah, you know what he saw as happening politically in this country. Well, you Nixon know, just you know really fucked with Connor Thompson's head. What was great about his his rantings and drug induced you know his his just his his vision of the world was that he had been through a utopia period in San Francisco in the late 60s so he had this idea of this LSD culture where he knew this was possible he knew it could be beautiful and then when the hopes were dashed and all the water was thrown on the fire then he became this you know wild fucking renegade there's that line about it's right here this is where the wave Broke and and then and it all rolled back. Yeah. I think he's, he's talking about the desert near Vegas. Yeah, um, which was one. Of it's the, a very you know this was a guy a failed romantic, a failed hippie. You yeah. know who's who's who'd seen everything go ugly real quick. Yeah, and I love the way he described the 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 so many people that were in the psychedelic movement. He was calling them mental cripples. He <laughs> was describing it that these, you know, basically these people are just locked into this crew of losers and they're dragging them around with them. And he, he stepped to the side and was watching the whole thing crash against the rocks. Such a fascinating writer that guy was. And was so fascinating that he had this idealistic period when he was younger and it had the hopes dashed. 
So it was almost like, you know... Yeah, I think it's where the anger came from, yeah. which was also, so you know, what was so funny about Thompson. Yeah. You I mean, know, that, that he describes a bad acid trip once, I think, in... in uh, in Philadelphia, Las Vegas, where he describes a really bad acid trip as being one where you look down your leg and see your dead grandmother crawling up your leg with a knife in her teeth. <laughs> I, 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 that is a beautiful image. <laughs> oh. Yeah, he's one of those dudes I really wish I had a chance to meet. You know, once you you find out about him later in life, you're like, wow. He was a great letter writer too. His uh, letters are available. I think the books are called The Proud Highway and. His correspondence with the people is really hilarious, really, really funny. He's a brilliant dude. Watch that, for folks listening, watch that documentary, though, Gonzo, yep. whatever it is. It's great. Life and works of something. I don't know if it's the life and times or whatever it is, but just Gonzo. Look for it. It's fucking incredible. So n- no one has really ever given you a hard time about killing animals. No. Um, what about from all the shit you say about vegans? Vegans, I find to be very defensive. Uh, I've I've joked about vegans a few times on the podcast, and I've gotten a bunch of hate mail, hate tweets. Yeah, um, there's a hardcore of vegans who are in, who are, they're not going to like me anyway. You know, whether I shoot animals, that's the fact that I'm eating meat at all and and talking about it as if it's something that that we should all do. I'm already their their blood enemy. So, um, no, I don't really get any problem from them. Vegetarians, I have a surprising number of vegetarian fans, which is something I really don't understand. I'm grateful for it. But apparently there are vegetarians with a sense of humor. Total vegans tend to not have a sense of humor. Um, but no, they haven't really haven't had any problems. It's the usual angry stuff, but not a lot of it. I always wish that somehow or another science had figured out a way to record the screams of lettuce. You know that they've found that lettuce they they can't move but they yeah they scream like squashing kittens you know it's just at a microbial level we can't really pick it up right this poor lettuce is suffering every time you eat it and then see what these self righteous fucks think yeah. that, that would suck be walking in the Whole Foods and you're like wearing the scarlet letter if you were just in the Whole Foods at the wrong time and there's just vegans everywhere eyeing you down when you're walking down. The- <laughs> You I don't know. think it's that bad. No, it's, it's not that bad. Yeah. You know, it was like that. that would be I ridiculous. have friends that are vegans. I have a few sh- silly friends. Like uh, Jamie Kilstein. He's a vegan. He's a great guy. I love that dude. He's silly though. Yeah. Have you ever? Been <laughs> we should help them if we can. I, I, he used to eat meat, and you know now he's like super lefty. He's like he, he's got this uh, radio show, Citizen Radio. You know, and they're real, real super lefty. You just gotta cook bacon around them. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like you know, just somewhere crack. in the distance, right? It's like, what is that? I, don't, I don't smell anything. Do you smell yeah. anything? You gotta be around wild pigs. You know, if you're so happy about pigs, you wouldn't be if you saw feral pigs. The pigs that you see have no relationship to the pigs that we would have if they were. We talked about this in the last podcast that they transform. You know, wild pigs, you know, if you, you set mm. a, a, a domestic pig loose, within three weeks, their body starts to change. They gr- Their tusks grow long, their snout grows long, their hair gets shaggy. And they become more delicious. Really, do they? <laughs> wild pig is good. Is wild pig better than domestic pig? Mm, kind of d- depends what you're looking for. You know, it's a game year. Sure. I've had boar before. That's fucking delicious. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Some of the, the, the game meats are like the most delicious meats, like elk. Elk is fantastic. You ever have elk? No. Never? Never. Oh, elk is delicious. Yeah, elk liver is delicious. Elk liver? Yeah. What is that? It's like, uh, like? calf's liver, but with its own sort of 
elky flavor. <laughs> well, whoever figured out how to do foie gras, that guy's a bad motherfucker. Yeah, you well, know? it's going to be illegal out here, I think. In 2012, what? The laws, uh, the laws kicking in, it will be, I believe, illegal to sell in the state of California. Oh, my God. There's a there's a restaurant called Brandywine in Woodland Hills, and it's like one of their specialties, and it's fucking fantastic. Yeah. It's so good. And I, I know it sucks to be a duck, but it sucks to be a duck no matter what, whether they have a giant liver or not. Yeah, but, but on that issue, people really tend to get cranky, especially out here. I mean, uh, some of the animal activists, terror, you know, I mean, absolutely terrorized chef friends of mine up in San Francisco. Really? There was a group up there who... Terrorized a chef friend, first you know, threatening phone calls. Uh, they broke into his business and trashed the whole business. Plugged up the toilets, you know, threw acid on the walls. Whoa. But but the, the nicest thing they did, I thought, was they slipped into his uh, backyard while he was away, and videotaped his wife and infant child together from the rear window, you know, from the from the backyard, and they sent him the tape. Holy shit! Um, basically saying to stop serving or, you know, selling or in any way dealing with foie gras. You know, after this, I just feel compelled, even if out of spite, to eat foie gras yeah. for the rest of my life. I want you it know? Now. Yeah. I will eat it today. There are some cunts out there that are just waiting for an argument. They're waiting to pick a side to be on, whatever team it is, and f- fucking fight that to the death. Yeah, I think they, they, they smartly saw foie gras as an easy win. You know, it's not like this is any more outrageous or painful or bad a procedure uh, in, in any way than any other animal we eat. I mean, the way chickens are raised in this country is is truly shocking. Or domestic hogs from some of the major uh, the major houses. You know, these are really sort of grotesque mass market. Uh, you know, and very unhealthy way to create food. Let's put it that way. So there are bigger and more deserving targets than foie gras, but I think the the, the animal rights guys uh, uh, saw it as something that they could win. It would because be a high profile so victory. It, it looks bad, um, and we should and say how, French, what French, it looks like. It's, you know, it's it is uh, basically when they feed the geese, who generally, if it's any kind of a, uh, any sort of a quality operation, the geese or the ducks come over to the feeder, but basically you tilt the thing's head back, you put a long funnel down its throat, and you know put a couple of handfuls of ground corn in, which they readily eat. It just looks like they're having food jammed into them. And if you, if you play footage of you know, someplace in Eastern Europe that is mass-producing this stuff very cruelly, there's some really terrifying footage that, that makes for a very lurid picture of the process. Add to that that French, you know, it's got a French name, and only a bunch of... Uh, you know, wealthy, high-end restaurants serve it. It, it was an easy victory for them. Isn't but it their possible? ultimate goal, you know, but basically bolstered by their their victory with foie gras here, they will then be able to raise money towards the next victory, which you know ultimately leads to their aim, which is to give chickens the vote. <laughs> Isn't foie gras? Can't you get it organically, where you don't force feed them? Isn't there is so it an they option? say? So they, I mean, they will, they will, they they will, if just left left on their own devices during a certain season, eat eat themselves, you know, into a bloated liver fattening uh, situation for sure. But that's the only way to get good foie to do that, that sort of force feeding, because otherwise the liver is just not. You know, you're not grabbing this. Any anyone I know in in this country who sells foie gras in their restaurant buys from one or two or three outfits, all of which I can tell you are not 
people brutally grabbing animals and jamming this tube down their throat and like you know some cartoon cat and you know one of those old warner brothers cartoons you know jamming <laughs> you know mouthful after mouthful as the belly expands it's like two handfuls a day it takes two like two seconds and uh it's not that bad and the animals otherly otherwise live really cool comfortable luxurious lives for for, for you know, in the in the world of poultry, uh, they're the aristocrats. So it's really just a couple quick blasts a day, and that's it. Yeah. Then, like every other animal, we kill them and harvest their stuff. And in this case, their stuff is a delicious, delicious, smooth, creamy, very tasty liver. I can't wait to try it. You've never had it. No. You got to go to this. I might go today. I might eat twice as much that I would normally. Yeah. Go to this brandy wine place. Yeah. But, but I guess the, those are the people you'd have to, you know, those are the people who get angriest, I think. There's some people that love animals more than they love people. Those people are creepy. Those, those fucking team animal people, those people that want to rescue animals from... There's, there's certain people, their agenda is ultimately to have no animals under people, like, in yards, no animals contained. None. You don't own animals. Animals have their own mm. rights. That's... <laughs> It's, it's such a first world form of lunacy, isn't it? Yeah. Well, they believe it's evolution. They believe that you know we need to move past our monkey past, and we move to we need to move past our carnivorous ways and embrace the ways of the plant. It's healthier and it's, it's natural, and nobody gets to get hurt. And we don't have to have horrific domestic. But that's who that's likes so to see silly. animals hurt. I mean, we can all yeah. agree on that. Yeah. It's true, but we, you know, if you don't shoot them, they don't live forever. Right. I mean, it's just, it's you're getting silly. There's a cycle of life. It's yeah. real simple. That shit's good for you. Steaks are, when you work out, if you work out, nothing feels better than a steak. You slice into that thing and you start chewing it and the blood in your mouth, like, oh. Yeah. It lets you know this is what you needed. This yeah. is what you're looking for. I feel that urge often, but, you know, it's really, maybe every couple of months I'll get that sudden, you know, I'd really like a salad. <laughs> maybe every two months. Or, or actually, if you're in, like, Czech Republic, anywhere in Eastern Europe, basically, uh, for, for more than two weeks, you, you're really starting to think long. Or Argentina or Uruguay, you, you don't see a green vegetable for like weeks. Wow. You don't see anything. It's just like pork, pork, more pork, starch, and beer. Do you, you start blocking up? Yeah. Yeah. Brock Lesnar, uh, our UFC, a former UFC champion, he had uh, to get 12 inches of his colon removed because all he ate was meat. Really? He, yeah, he was one of those crazy dudes who like wouldn't eat salads. He's a fucking caveman, you know. He's this giant gorilla. He's like literally like a real Viking. His fucking uh -huh. head is this big. He's just a giant wrestler dude. He's a savage, and he just ate meat. That's all he wanted to eat. He didn't want broccoli. Right. Fuck you with your broccoli. He's just eating steaks and Boy. just dropping people on their heads. Well, apparently, when you do that, you if you have just too much protein, it can cause something in your stomach called diverticulitis, and that's what happened with him. And ultimately, yeah, but you can get that get from surgery. cucumbers. Cucumbers too. The, the really? seeds. The, you know, anything that that has semi-digestible particles, like I, th I get the seeds in cucumbers, for instance. They, the they seeds get, in cucumbers can give you diverticulitis. Well, yeah, they because they sort of tuck off into the side there and and. It start to irritate. It's, fa it's a fascinating turn. Whoa! <laughs> Conversation. We're going to move our way on to uh, ulcers and uh, right. and then uh, fistula, which is one of my favorite words. Well, my my my. <laughs> the only reason we're bringing it up is that uh, you know all he did was eat meat, and I always wonder like that can't be good. You know like, how do these people? Man, civil look, Jesus. He's, he was pissed off before, and now, now he's lost 11 inches of colon. 12. 12. Yeah. Now he's really pissed off. Yeah, no Jeez. shit. 
Yeah, you have to eat. I mean, like, in, how do these cultures do it? How do they get away with just eating meat? No, I, I, no broccoli I, I, listen, or no, no roughage? Seriously, I think uh, certain cultures clearly over time um, develop their systems around the food. I mean, you see this in the north of Canada with the Inuit uh, uh, people up there. They eat seal and seal fat. They need it. They're, they're, and their bodies have changed because of this diet to, to, to adapt to this incredible cold. I mean, you, it, it's... The notion that people could ever be vegetarian in a place like that, where there's not a growing thing for a thousand miles, and it's like 20 below zero, you know, these people live because they shoot seals and eat their blubber, and and you could see it in their bodies. They're you know they're able to withstand temperatures that would kill us in hours. Jesus Christ. Uh, they also have some weird thing where their fingers don't get numb. They have uh, incredible circulation in their fingers. They can take extreme cold that we wouldn't be able to take. It's like one of the things that they point to uh, adaptation. It's one of the like uh, the, the key points of adaptation that's mm-hmm. been observed over the. It's it's pretty it's pretty amazing, you know, especially when you're you're feeling it. I mean, that, you know, when when you feel cold like that for the first time, you you. What's the coldest you've ever been? That that was that was. What is it on? Cold. What is the number? I don't even know. I know that if you know stepping outside for a minute, you know, to have a cigarette, uh, you, you know, you, you have to completely suit up. It just cold so penetrating that you really got it just a couple of minutes before you start getting hypothermic. I know a dude who knows a dude who lives in Alaska. The guy's a, a cue maker. He makes pool cues. Mm-hmm. Lives way the fuck up north. He took a bucket of hot water and threw it off his back porch and it was frozen before it hit the ground. Wow. Wrap your head around that shit. Doesn't seem possible. It is possible, apparently. Apparently it's like 40, 50 below zero, that's what happens. I remember up, up there in, uh, <laughs> up there, we were all in our latest sort of, you know, Everest ready, you know, down parkas, you know. They laughed their asses off at us when, when we got off, when we got off the plane, we said, you know, are we dressed well enough to go out in the canoes? And they just laughed their asses off. Had to slip a big like caribou smock over yourself on top of the down jackets to, you know, to, to operate. Fuck. All our all our cameras locked up, like froze up and locked up within seconds of each other. After I don't know, it must have been maybe we shot for an hour, an hour and a half. You know, the machinery can't handle it. Was that the most humbling uh, feeling of nature that you've ever had while shooting a show? Um, seeing a whole family, t- you know. Basically, shoot a seal, drag it onto their kitchen floor on a tarpaulin, and then everybody in the family—you know, mom, dad, grandma, you know, junior—they all whip out knives and start tearing this thing apart. And they start eating little pieces of it too. They eat the whole thing to each other, and it, it looks like it looks like Night of the Living Dead, but it, it is in fact one of the most sort of genuinely heartwarming times I've had on the show. I mean, they're they're survival. They're, they're incredibly happy when they're doing this, um, and 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 juxtaposing those you know those pictures in your mind of what are clearly a, a close and happy family uh, having a good time with all of this blood that's kind of takes some getting used to but I, yeah. I think when you travel a lot you get used to uh, the notion that people are different or, or you know live in very different circumstances and people adapt to those circumstances and that's just the way it is for them totally and I, I think it's uh, you know uh, because because we're interested principally in food on the show, I think uh, people everywhere have been particularly nice to us and let us see a particularly, um, 
I don't know, a side of their personalities, a side of their cultures that I think a lot of other, you know, hard journalists don't get to see. People's defenses are down. You know, they don't, they don't, they're less likely to put up a front or be someone other than who they really are, you know, over the table. You know, right away, you break bread with somebody, you drink the local drink, whatever it is, you eat whatever's offered, you try to be a good guest. I think you're going to connect with people over food in a way that you couldn't if you're just some guy with a, you know, a microphone and a camera. You know, people, cameras and things, you know, you know, changes the situation. Uh, but the fact that, that you know, we, uh, I travel largely on my stomach, I think gives me a, uh, you know, like I said, an advantage. What a fucking crazy way to live, dude. That's fascinating. Were you in, did you go to, was it Brazil, the last USC? I didn't go to that one. Yeah. I was filming Fear Factor, so I stayed home. Yeah. I couldn't afford to take the four days off. It's good food down there. In Brazil? Oh, Rio? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've been to Sao Paulo. I went to a real churrascaria in Sao Paulo. Mm-hmm. Pretty badass. Yeah. They're like Fogo de Chao, but they had a lot more organs. In Brazil, they eat a lot of chicken hearts and... Things along those lines, chicken livers. The, the big wicked. meal is feijoada. The whole country does it. You know, feijoada? It's, it's basically a big stew of hooves and snouts and black beans. And it's really delicious. And it's, it came originally from slave food. It was the, the scraps from the table of the wealthy Portuguese that uh, their slaves would collect and, and try to make into something you know, edible or even delicious. And over time, they created this dish that... that uh, you know, it was the, the food of the very poor at one point. Now it's like the national dish. Everybody in Brazil at one point or another, Saturday, you invite the family over and you sit around eating this huge, huge amounts of feijoada and getting really, really, really fucked up on cachaça. <laughs> well, that, uh, the episode that you had in Brazil was really wild when you were at that fish market and there's these fucking alien fish that they're all eating. That like, is wow. kooky out there. I mean, you're, you know, that's freshwater fish. You're in, a, you're in water the depth of a rice paddy. You know, I mean, three feet of water, and you'll, you're driving around. You look in a basically rice paddy deep water to the left, and you see a 500 pound freshwater fish, <laughs> you know, breaking the surface. It's wild. I mean, there are all of these fish and uh, and creatures and, uh, and and fruits and vegetables down there that never make it out of that area. So it's really uh, ingredient wise, it's really another planet. Yeah, I would imagine so. I really, I, like I said, I, I didn't get to eat much interesting food over there. I was there for the World Jiu-Jitsu Championships in 2003, so I was only there for a couple of days. But uh, we did go to the supermarket and get these fucking alien-looking fruits. Like, I had never even seen them before. Never heard of them. I had no idea what the fuck it was. I just picked up a bunch of different ones with weird seeds in them and strange flavors. And It's a great country, great food, you know, great culture. Um, it's a wild country, man. People are, people are really nice. Um, they're the country that figured out fighting. They figured it out. There was a lot of confusion as to how to fight correctly. The Brazilians were really one of the first to really figure it out. They put the first big piece to the puzzle. Jiu-Jitsu put the first big piece where everybody was like, whoa, okay, this, this, you got to know this. Because if you don't know this, they're going to grab you and they're going to break your shit. It's really simple. So the, the Brazilian guys just revamped the whole system. And then wrestlers came along and kickboxers. And then people realized you, you have to have really a full arsenal of techniques. But if you don't have a full arsenal of techniques, if you just had one, jiu-jitsu is probably one of the best ones to have. And the Brazilians were the ones who figured that out. 
You know, when it came to, if you didn't know, back in the day, nobody knew everything because there never was anything like the Ultimate Fighting Championship. So there's never an opportunity to see what was better to know. It was just speculative. Is it better to be a boxer? Is it better to be a wrestler? Who the fuck knows? It was just, nobody really knew. But the Brazilians came along and they figured out that if you only know one thing, you should know how to choke people. Because fights <laughs> usually scramble. The, you know, you're in a bar, you fall, you're on the ground. That, you should know how to strangle a guy once you go to the ground. That's a wild culture to figure that out, man. <laughs> you know? I, I, I love it. It's, 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 you know, Rio's awesome. I like El Salvador, uh, in Bahia in the, in the north. Uh, that's sort of the African heartland of Brazil. and It's where the food is sort of spiciest and richest and most interesting. And, you know, it, it just, it, there's no culture like it on Earth. You know, aside from the fighting, it, it is... I don't know how anyone could actually. I don't understand how anyone works or wants to work. You know, if you uh, when you get used to the, just hearing that music, uh, you know, being in a country that beautiful, uh, food that good, everybody in that country looks like uh, you know, attractive or not. Everybody in Brazil seems to look like they either just got laid and they're coming from getting laid, or they're on their way to getting laid. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's you awesome. know, it's, it's going to the beach in Brazil is, is amazing because you see people of every size, you know, every hue. Um, just kind of the beach, just the beach culture is, is, is so awesome. And there's no, I don't think there's any country where a, a people love, seem to like music and dance as, as ferociously. It's really tough to not dance in Brazil because everybody seems to. Wow. So is that your favorite country? No. Is it up there? No, but but uh, it is it is one of my favorite countries. There's What's something the really really awesome about Brazil. What's your favorite? Um, man, favorite. I don't know. Spain. It, Spain's really awesome. You know, I, Spain was where you were at that restaurant. Was it El Bulli? Is that right. how you say it? Yeah, but just about anywhere in Spain is is is, is going to be a special place with great food and it's going to be beautiful. Um, Vietnam, I love. You know, I, I think that. Vietnam resembles all of the, the, the places I dreamed about, you know, when I was a, a little boy. You know. Really? The exotic, the exotic East. Well, you know, there is that, that the, the decaying French aspect, uh, the indigenous Vietnamese. The, that, that whole part of the world looks, to me, particularly beautiful. And uh, they, they like food in a way that, that I've, I find very sympathetic. They're passionate about it. Um, so Vietnam, is, that, that's going to be a sentimental favorite as well. Wow. So Vietnam, num numero uno, huh? Wow. But you could do worse than, you know, to, to, you know, to keel over after a really good meal, to you know, die with a big hunk of pork in your mouth in Spain would not be a bad way to go out. <laughs> Anybody that doesn't appreciate the idea of cooking as an art form should watch that show on El Bouye. Is that, am I saying it El correctly? El Bouye, yeah. El yeah. Bouye? That that guy, wow! What a fucking wizard that guy is. So really intensely creative chef that had this small restaurant in Spain. Yeah, amazing. I mean it was the, it was basically the best, it was considered the best restaurant in the world for for a, a long time. And certainly he was a guy way out in front of everybody else. Uh, yeah, that was some good food porn we did, and and I, I think that was a show I'm really. You know, every once in a while we get an opportunity to do a show that might actually mean something in a few years and, and I, we, we shot I think we shot some history with that show because the restaurant closed the same night I think that we aired the show or, or close to it and uh, 
you know that is that was that's a true artist and uh, it was a limited period of time and that era is over and we managed to get it on 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 tape so, so that's something I'm really proud of. I was confused as to what he was doing afterwards. He was talking about some he's going to start a, a foundation people together basically. And... It's, a, it's a think tank essentially. He's a creative space where people from all over the world can talk to each other or meet or come up with new ideas. Hmm. Trippy. Very trippy because, you know, I, I have to be honest, and until I watched your show, I never thought of food as an art form. I always thought of food as, uh, you know... Well, no, I think your instincts are right. Uh, I, I think there are maybe two or three people in the world who I would say, you know, who are chefs, maybe two or three chefs in the world who you could honestly say they're artists as opposed to really talented it, craftsmen. Really? I mean, artists, you know, somebody who's creating something completely different than anybody else. You know, Is but, it, does it have to absolutely be completely different? Because it's almost just doing it really well and with attention to detail and like that that, that is art. It does come through when you have a... a I think there's a, a difference between the people who designed the great cathedrals of Europe and the people who built them. The people who built them are some of the, probably some of the greatest craftsmen you know, in the history of the world. Uh, but they were just that. They were working within an established hierarchy. They were about doing the same thing again and again and again, exactly the same. Um, I, I just don't think there are that many people who... If the ben, For me, the benchmark is Ferran Adria at El Bui. I mean, this was a guy who was like Charlie Parker or Jimi Hendrix. You know, nobody had ever made sounds out of a guitar before like Jimi Hendrix, you know? No one had ever made sounds out of a horn like Charlie Parker. They were unique to history. There aren't a lot of people who will ever be that good or that different. Um, Ferran Adria is, is like those guys. That's so. That's the high watermark for you. So there's only a few guys like that. They just really are paving a path and doing their own. Yeah, thing. but what do we what do we do now? You know, he right. closed his restaurant. You know, it, it, it was it was tra traumatizing for I, I think for a lot of people so who looked at him. The Michael Jordan of chefs. He's the, <laughs> the peak of the hill, right? Yeah, he's the Bruce Lee of chefs. Bruce Lee and Michael Jordan t together. Yeah. Wow. With a little bit of Dalai Lama. Who else know. is left? How many guys are left? True artists? I, I don't know. And I wouldn't even like to think about it. I know there's somebody out this there. There's a small handful. I probably, you know, it's probably someone whose food I've eaten and I, I'm, I just, I'm too stupid to have recognized that it was historic and great. Well, even the craftsmen, even if you're just recreating classic dishes, I don't give a fuck. When someone's really good at it, it comes through as an art. I see what you're saying. They might not be the innovators. They might not be at the head of the field. I mean, you know, there, there are a lot of really great innovative chefs out there. But art, you know, I, I right. said a high standard, you know. High standard for the word Picasso art. here, right? Yeah, here. well, I'm a fucking comedian. Man. We call comedy <laughs> art. <laughs> you know, some people would call this the art of podcasting. It gets ridiculous. Yeah, I will, I will, I will go to my grave without having created any art. I'm pretty damn sure. <laughs> really? Oh, wow. You think that? That's funny. Because I think your book is art, man. You no. don't think that's art? You start, if you start talking about yourself like that, you know, then you start talking about yourself in the third person. And it's after that, there's that really nothing, nothing left to do but get arrested, like, you know, having beaten a transsexual hooker to death, you know? It's beautiful that you think like that. That's why you're you, man. You, you, it's a beautiful way to think. That is the road to madness and, and uh, incarceration. True. Yeah. Can, can, talking about yourself as an artist, stepping back, and you know, as an artist, I feel, as an artist, you know, ever since I've been writing books, as an artist, yeah, that's it's. it's a I don't really road. see. I don't see what I do. Anything that I do is essentially that much different than standing on a on a on a line and one of one chef or cook among many, you know, making food. 
you know, you're presumably you're building something or making something as best you can. You're showing up at work on time, doing the best job you can. You're hopefully you're having fun doing it. Um, you know, and so so they aren't that different. I don't see what one sto- telling stories on television or talking about yourself on television. I don't see as being essentially any any different, or certainly no better than you know actually working for a living. You know, right? I see what you're saying. That you are one of those guys that. You know, you could just be. You, I, anyone could know you as that guy that you work with, with a great personality, who's funny, likes to talk shit about things. Kind of an interesting guy. You know, he could be a TV star. If somebody just put a camera on him, this guy needs his own reality show. You know, I mean, how many how many people do you know like that? I've I've known thousands of them. My my friend Johnny B. I, I used to. My best friend was a professional pool hustler. He was halfway homeless. So he was sleeping on my couch, on other people's couches. And he was a genius. He could throw math problems at him. He would recreate them. A guy like that would make a great reality show. I, I, I think the, if, 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 if television has taught us anything, it's that you know, complete mediocrity is enough to have uh, you know, your own reality show. You know, uh, there's that, it's, it's all about your willingness to, to play ball. You, know, you look at those kids on Jersey Shore. You know, does this situation like drive a Bentley to work, you know, and then he's got to sleep on a cot with a bunch of other boneheads, <laughs> right. you know, who he hates, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Is that really how the show works? They all hang out together, right? Well, it, yeah, they all like live in a the, house, right? Or they used well, to. For, during shooting yeah. season, yeah. the rest, you yeah. know, I mean. No, the rest. Yeah, you, right? he's not taking a moped home right. at this he, point. You know, but. the way I look at him is like, uh, good for him, you know. I see what else as, would he be doing? You I know? see this as a, as, a, as a Greek tragedy, actually, <laughs> you know. It, it really, I mean, really, it, you know, you, you, the, the whole dynamic of the show. They're they're trying hard. They, they they by now they know that they know the terrible rules of television. You know, it's not about looking good. They got that early on. You know, but now it's just they, they know how to play ball. They got a good thing. They got a good gig, and uh, and and they're milking it for as long as they can. But look at the Real Housewives chain. You know, it's like, does anyone go on the Real Housewives thinking that they're going to look good? I mean, that's yeah. not what the show's about. It's about making f- people sitting on couches with a you know, a, you know, bag of chips, saying, "Man, those people are even way more fucked up than me." And what have they done <laughs> to their faces? I mean, who buys that? Look at those lips. What human yeah. has lips like that? And that's the chick who her husband just committed suicide, and then his business partner committed suicide too. Foul play. You yeah. think so? That's I mean, what everyone's saying. It, it's all about you know, imagine you showing up for work every day, knowing that your job is to you know. I need you know, everyone who watches will feel better about themselves, you know, and be snickering at me, you know, as my, my cartoonish behavior. It and, is fascinating that the trend of reality television took off. That this idea of just following housewives or following guys driving on slippery roads. Yeah. You know, Ice Road Truckers is a show about driving on a slippery road. How silly is that? You know, these auction shows and all these. I don't know, you know. I don't know if it's the worst thing that ever happened in history or the or the best. You know, I. I, I, I it's I don't weird, know. you know. I don't think it's worse or the best, but it's definitely weird. It's like I mean, I do watch some of those shows, like Jersey Shore. I can watch only about ten minutes of it before just my my eyeballs start to explode. You know, it's just too much. It's just too too horrifying and and, and yet fascinating. You know, so I'm good for ten minutes of thinking this is the greatest <laughs> show that ever existed. 
after which I just I can't. It's too painful. And meanwhile, that's pretty watered down, you know, as far as like the, the the low level behavior of this country. Have you seen the wild and wonderful whites of West Virginia? No. The no. Johnny Knoxville documentary. You got to see it. It's awesome. Johnny just, Knoxville. No, so few of these shows have really any any relationship to reality at all. They've created this alternate reality where real people are behaving like you know soap the soap opera freaks that they're expected to behave like, <laughs> and and so your, your complicity in this whole terrible process of you know, public self-humiliation, uh, that's kind of fascinating. Well, not only that, that they also have to, they do these fake tasks, like things happen. Oh, no, we got to get down to DMV. I'm going to lose my license. Right. Sure you are. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, this is, like, they orchestrate fake drama and fake things. That well, they I'm waiting for the day, you know, that, the, you know, I get the phone call from my agent saying, you know, we really think celebrity rehab is a good career move for you right now. <laughs> you know, that says something. But at what point? Does this seem strategically like a good career move, you know, celebrity rehab? Yeah, you got to be pretty fucked up, especially if you're Eric Roberts and you're just, it's just weed. That would, that guy was the weirdest one because he got on celebrity rehab because he said he was having a problem with weed. Yeah. And then everybody else is shaking like a leaf, throwing up and saying, he's having coffee, reading the paper. <laughs> it looks like there's nothing wrong with him. Like, you don't need to be here, man. You yeah, but he knows him. the drill, though. He's got to have at least one freak out during the season. Right, is that what it is? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, Jack, yeah, those are generally the rules of, you yeah, know. you get a bonus. You're, you're. <laughs> He's just thinking cha-ching, cha-ching, Wells Fargo. That's wow. one of the most disturbing shows, Celebrity Rehab. Very, very, very disturbing. Hard to watch. Yeah, wouldn't you be depressed, though, like if your agent called you up and said, listen, you know, Joe, I've got a great offer, <laughs> Celebrity Rehab. You're like, wow, what does it say about me? I would, I would like, go into the bathroom and stare in the mirror for a really long time saying, oh, oh fuck, you know. What have <laughs> I done? Bad, right? What have I done? Yeah. yeah. That's why it's good to have friends back home where you're, like, freaking out too much. Oh, my God, I'm drinking too much. Right. What'd you do? Uh, we, we got wasted last night, blacked out Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Oh, good, right, never mind. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, Tony, just, you know, we've our market research has shown us that, you know, audiences really want you know, more footage of you vomiting. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking of vomiting, man, you, you had that one episode where you took I Ayahuasca. Yeah. Was, was that legit? <laughs> yeah, I did. You know, I've taken a lot of LSD earlier in my life. So by the time I took ayahuasca for the first time, um, so I was like, kind of, it was for me, it was kind of like ecstasy in the sense that I'm sitting around waiting to get off. It didn't work? It did, but it was a big deal. You know, really? LSD, now that's a drug. Right. You know, think I, about- that, that was my, that was my, that was my experience. I think you got some low-level shit, and sometimes they do that. I've always heard that from the ayahuascaros that they water down the stuff they give to the mm-hmm. gringos. They don't want anybody going crazy, running through the woods, seeing dragons and flying fucking serpents and UFOs and shit. But everybody that I know that's taken it, that's taken legit doses, has had crazy psychedelic vision. Yeah, I mean, I went into the experience. You know, it's this cottage. Not a cottage. It's a shack up on stilts, as I recall, out in the middle of the jungle in the Amazon. We're like... Four hours, six hours by boat from any place, like resembling a place with a hospital. Um, no lights. Um, so I went into the experience with the expectation that it would be like the book, where I'd be crawling around naked in the jungle, you know, shitting and puking for six hours before I discover my spirit animal. <laughs> <laughs> so this is what I thought I was going into. Um, so but honestly, I mean, you know, I got off seriously, uh, but but it, it, it wasn't like uh, acid, right? So they gave me a weak dose. Yeah, I mean, I I gather, you know, I, I didn't shit myself, so it was win-win, uh. though. <laughs> <laughs> 
how deep were you in acid? Like mini hits, or were you a one or two, or did you like? Because I, I used to hang out with guys who would be like, I took eleven hits, and I'm like, what? Right. No, I was not one of these guys who'd sit around like you know, taking too much. I mean, right. you know when it's enough. Right. Do you and, make your mushrooms in a risotto into a risotto first, or do you do anything fancy? Uh, back in the day, we did uh, marinate the mushrooms in t- in honey. I think we marinated them in honey overnight or longer. And then uh, would mix it into a big pot of hot tea, and the whole kitchen would be drinking this tea all yes. night long. Oh, marinate um, it in honey because that's how I make it a tea. That's my new thing. I'm not I suggesting you do that. No, I just no, 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 no. We did it. You know? you know, that's what they used to use right. to preserve honey. mushrooms back in the day. Honey. Yeah, they used to preserve them in honey. They would uh, dry them up and preserve them in honey, and they believed that that's one of that's one of the ways that people started getting into alcohol because honey can ferment and become mead. And that, you know, that eventually, like, this is like one of Terrence McKenna's theories, that people went from being uh, intoxicant-oriented, like with psychedelic mushrooms, to alcohol-oriented. And that somehow or another fucked society up. And at one time, we got along way better. He has this... uh, I got a great bit of of history, uh, actually, that I was was reading about coffee lately. You know, when they first... The first coffee houses in England um, were quickly declared illegal by the, by the, the, the government. They, they saw these as hotbeds of sedition, and they closed them down. Why? Because up until that point in history, most Europeans and most people in England would wake up in the morning and drink mead. That's all they drank all day long. It was basically you know crude beer, homemade beer. Um, so up until this point in history, when people started drinking coffee in these coffee houses, everybody in Europe could be counted on to be fucked up all day long. So nobody was... <laughs> So coffee houses were the first place in, in Europe where people would sit around in a state of sobriety. And, and as ten, people tend to do, you know, when you're sober, you notice shit. And they're like, hey, have you noticed our government's like really fucking us? So <laughs> <laughs> the government was right, of course, because this was the first time that people were actually drinking a beverage and hanging out and, and with their wits about them. And that was seen as a really dangerous thing. Food for thought. That's fascinating. Well, that's exactly what's going on with marijuana in this country. They're trying to keep that away from people. A good, good percentage of it is they're worried about people waking up. They're worried about I don't people. Know. If I was like, you know, uh, if I was president and wanted to be like reelected, if I was, was a really bad president, or, or, or I, I'd want people to smoke, you know, marijuana. Uh, you know, basically, you know, who smoke, who smokes weed? They're generally we're talking. Yeah, everybody. In California, everybody. Yeah, but people who smoke... I mean, yeah, back home. Every, every, you got is there a, a correlation people... between weed smoking and voting? Yeah. Frequency of voting, that's what I'm wondering. The it's only like, way... You know, do people like... Is there a huge I flaked factor? Oh, for sure. You know, it's like... I, <laughs> some comedian was talking about this one thing. I don't know who did it. It was the, the whole bit about... Uh, why, why it's never been... Will never be uh, voted in as legal. Because all the most fervent supporters will forget to show up. Yeah. Right. I don't know who who said it, but it was really funny. Yeah, that is true. A good percentage. Well, you know, this my my take on the 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 amount of potheads that are useless is just like my take on the amount of regular people that are useless. There's a certain percentage, whether it's twenty or thirty, or if you're pessimistic, up to fifty percent of people that are just fucking useless. And it doesn't matter if you give them marijuana. It doesn't matter if you get them drunk. They're just they're just low watt brains. Yeah, because I think to change the law, you'd need 100% turnout. Yeah. That's, that's going to be tough. But I've had some people that I know that have uh, gotten to pot like late in life, and it's completely changed the way they look at things, like for the better. You know, it helps. Like, like look at Kevin Smith. 
Didn't start smoking weed until three years ago. Look at you. Look at me. <laughs> I, I can think of a lot of public figures out there who would probably have benefited from early use of psychedelics. And Unquestionably. Yeah. I mean, Steve Jobs always talks about that, that you know, one of the, uh, the most powerful experiences in his life was uh, tripping on acid. I think some would respond well. I think John McCain would, would, would be a, a different and, and more interesting person if he'd done acid at some point in his life. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And he wouldn't be so scared. He would have a, others a would different get, Others I'd be worried about. I would be very worried about giving Michelle Bachman acid. That's <laughs> that some squeaky from shit right there. I would be worried about giving her husband acid. Oh, man. Acid and Viagra and then run. <laughs> but I would like to do acid with Bill Clinton. Dude, you know, do you know who Michelle Bachman's husband be, is? Do you know what we're talking about? Uh, listen, I'd be shocked if, by the way, if Bill Clinton hadn't done acid. Oh, no. Well, he must have yeah, done he acid. Definitely, he still does. Yeah, that was all that nonsense that he didn't inhale. Yeah, I don't know. It was back in the day. But, you, you know, after his, I did not have sex with that woman, all that I did not inhale really lost a lot of weight. Yeah, I'll never forgive him for that, actually. <laughs> Just, you know, I, I don't care. You know, everything that he was accused of, like, I'm pretty okay with treat me like an idiot though yeah i really found unforgivable you know it's i, I really found that uh, d despicable and could never really never forgive i did not have sex you know with that so woman. technically you know, right. it's just so is bad. what what i just understand really, as sexual relations is what i understand the term to be un un on, for man. me it's unfor unforgivable yeah it's uh, i also wish that he had stepped up and said it's none of your fucking business i wish yeah. he had said this is a ridiculous private matter and you're trying to make it a big circus. It's really amazing like like it seems like the smarter you are and the higher you are in the in the public eye the more powerful you are the more likely you are to behave like the stupidest person to ever be on like law and order, you know. <laughs> <laughs> It's like twenty-year-old girls. Did dresses. you not say in your previous deposition <laughs> that you did not have? Said, and yet, <laughs> readily available to, to these or to your arresting officers. You know, yeah. it's just so. It's just, they believe that some alternate reality, you know, exists. You know, once once the inquirer has got their hooks in you, it, it's time to let it hang out. You know, I think <laughs> certain people become delusional when they hit a certain level of notoriety, like the president of the United States. I mean, that level must be so intoxicating. And when you're already kind of crazy, which most people who are, who, right. who run pr to become president in the first place, you got to be at least a little bit fucking crazy. And then all of a sudden you're there and the whole world is paying attention to you every moment. You just feel like you could just stick your dick in someone's mouth. It's like, what's the big deal? I'd be uh, stick it in there. <laughs> I was I was thinking my first order and uh, my first uh, first thing in office, you know, I'm the president is uh, by degree. I would, I would make sure there was an In-N-Out Burger in New York City. We would need a cha many chains, many, many outlets of In-N-Out. You're that much of a fan of In-N-Out Burger? Yeah, I would. Uh, some I would use the power of the government to make sure that happens. You love them that much? It's it's it's. It, I'm, I'm bitter that we don't have them in New York. Really? Yeah. Do you ever have? Do you have five outrage. guys? Do you have five guys burgers? Yeah, I think we do. Five Guys Burger is pretty fucking good. I'm a sentimental guy about this. Really? This stuff. It's exotic to me. I mean, I know there's better burgers out there, but the, but it's something I like about it. You just get hooked on certain tastes. Yeah, and I kind of like that their 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 business model just goes against the scent, you know, against the grain. Yeah, it's a good business model. It's kind of interesting. We always yeah. try to shoot there, and they never let us like shoot in there. Uh, we, we've we've had uh, we've had difficulties. Really? Yeah, but. We, we got a shot. What about the Chick-fil-A guy? You ever try to shoot at his place? <laughs> he doesn't, he's, a guy, he's a guy that doesn't open on Sunday because that's the oh, Lord's Day. Right. All oh, really? Chick-fil-A's are closed on Sunday. So that's the Lord's Day. Mm. 
Am I kind of voting by by what by eating their chicken? You know, anyway. You know what I, mean? I don't think so. I've, right. In the end, does it really matter? Yeah. Right. Does it really matter? I don't know. If they're just a really evil corporation, you know, you know that they're like, you know, they're all of their products are made by you know imprisoned children somewhere. Right. Yes. Yeah, probably that don't. matters. Yeah. yeah. But the Chick Fil A guy who believes in the baby Jesus, you know, he doesn't want to work on Sunday. Who gives a shit? Oh yeah, I think the In and Out Burger guys are. There's, there was a religious component to the to the company really? at some point, an Just underlying philosophy. But the point is, they've apparently created this like really pretty cool business model for for fast food, and it's an issue that I, I think about a lot because uh, I, I don't some I, I don't know which economist somebody said somebody smarter than me, you know, another fifteen years we're going to be a country, everybody in the country will all be selling cheeseburgers to each other. That that will be <laughs> what Americans do. You know, we don't make anything anymore, really. You know, manufacturing has dropped to you know nothing. We're we're into making you know Transformers Seven and uh, and uh, you know selling each other burgers. Before the economy even collapsed, Putin was quoted as saying, "I don't understand the American economy. It seems that all they do is sell houses to each other." Well, he was right about that. <laughs> he was fucking know. right. He's right about that. You know, but I mean. Truthfully, I mean, what our what is our I think what our best export, you know, our, is our war. Biz- no, honestly, no, it's culture. It's it's it, culture. it is true. It is yeah. war is pretty close second. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know music. Uh, yeah, for music, sure. Music, TV, comedy. It, it yeah. is uh, it is our most powerful yeah. weapon and our most powerful. I think it's what we do best, you know, for better or worse. I mean. I agree, 100%. Especially, you know, television and films. I mean, you know, as opposed to other countries. Every, every now and then, another country will make a good movie. But, God damn, there's a giant chunk of them that come from this fucking wacky place. Yeah. Do you ever go someplace where you go, ooh, being from America might be kind of touchy here? Um, there have been places where I thought that was going to happen, where, in fact, we were treated really, 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 really well. Like where? Where'd you worry about? Um, well, everywhere in the Arab world, uh, the hospitality has been unbelievable. Saudi Arabia, I was, you know, apprehensive. You know, they they take a lot of Saudis take a have very have a very different view of the world than I do for sure. Um, but no, I think everywhere I've been, uh, again, it's kind of about the people have been incredibly hospitable in places that I didn't expect uh, up front they would have any particular love for Americans. The Vietnamese were incredible from the first time I went there. Um, you know, a lot of bad history there. I even asked at one point, I turned to somebody I was with, I said, aren't you guys pissed? You know, aren't you cranky about anything? Yeah. And they're like, you know, don't flatter yourself, dude. You know, life's hard out here. You know, don't don't consider yourself special. Since you, we fought the Chinese, the Cambodians, the Chinese again. Before you, there was the French, the Japanese, uh, the Chinese. We've been at war for 600 years. You know, you were only around for X. So they take a really professional kind of long view uh, basically if we stop fighting this week next week you're welcome at my house we'll hang out we'll talk shop we'll get fucked up tell wow. some jokes yeah. wow generally speaking I mean so that that's a place where people have been really hospitable and I didn't expect it uh, a lot of places you know we shot at favelas in, in, in Rio and basically you know very Poor, very crime-ridden areas of uh, uh, of uh, Rio and uh, Buenos Aires. A place you have to sort of hook up with the local crime guy, you know, whoever the mayor of the block is. The mayor, the ma- no, no, no. This is our fixer will contact us. If you want to shoot in this area, you're going to need somebody 
a local godfather or the, the the head of the crew or whoever controls that area in the real world, we have to contact them and say, listen, we're going to make a point of coming at you, showing you respect, offering you a few dollars, because it's never about the money. You know, and, and we'll get to wander around and shoot your whole area of your city without fear of being shot or stabbed or robbed. And, um, and we do that again and again. And again, we just show the respect of acknowledging, for better or worse, you are the boss of this neighborhood. We're going to show you respect in front of your neighbors, and you will keep us from getting shot while we're shooting in your neighborhood. But again, it's, it's just about, it's, you know, we're not paying people. It's, people are proud of their food. Chances are they're proud of their neighborhood. They're proud of their friends. If somebody sh expresses interest in telling their story or, sh or, or showing the world what they do, particularly if there's food involved and local beverage, chances are you're going to have a good time. You're going to be treated well in this world. One of the most uh, kind of heartwarming, really cool, homey moments was when you were in Naples and that guy took you into his house for Sunday dinner and it was sort of a last-minute right. thing. Oh, it was totally last-minute. Our, 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 our fixer had... It had hooked us up with a family, you know, I know, a friend of a friend, and that fell through at the last minute. And, you know, literally, I mean, the car with my driver, he says, oh, you just come over to my mother's house. My mother will cook for you. Sure, she'll be on TV. I'll tell her tomorrow. It was perfect. And it was, it was one of those moments. The minute perfect. we walk in, I knew this woman it was, like, made for television. She was just so completely real and awesome and tough. She's like chain smoking while she's cooking, <laughs> stirring the, the sauce. She had this way of talking She's bullying to me. <laughs> <laughs> she was talking about her sauce. <laughs> she was so amazing. Oh man, that was, yeah, you couldn't you couldn't put that in an Adam Sandler movie. People would think you were too over the top. It's really great when you, it's really great when you get lucky when you're, when you're shooting and something really amazing happens. You meet and you know, the food looked fucking jamming. Oh. The way that meat was boiling in that sauce. Yeah. Oh, oh, it was bubbling. You knew it was on for hours. Right. You knew it was just going to just melt in your mouth. That show was one of those where it just totally did not suck making that show. Yeah. You know? Fuck. And we all, and everybody on the crew gains like five pounds. I gained five pounds watching your fucking show. <laughs> I eat at night when everybody's asleep. That's when I watch your show. I cook something and uh, then I'll sit in front of your, your show and eat way more than I should. What I do generally is if I, if I know I'm shooting in Rome or Naples, anywhere in Italy um, or Eastern Europe, you know, in Dumpling Land, you know, I'll make sure that the next show is in. You know, someplace really impoverished, Sproutland. right? Or, or, or with a really like maybe Vietnam, someplace with a pretty light uh, cuisine. You know, where you oh, okay, so you balance noodles. it out. Yeah, I we learned our lesson. I think we did Brittany and Provence in a row. You know, so the whole crew were all together for like eighteen days in France of, on, a, on a food show. So, you know, we're ordering just like lots of stuff. Everyone on the crew gained like. Eight, 10 pounds. You know. How is it that people in France with their incredibly rich diets are thin? They're, well, they're way thinner than Americans. They move. Is that they, what it is? They, they move around a lot. Yeah, they're always peddling around and shit, walking around, <laughs> doing all this crazy, cookie European shit. Peddling <laughs> around and shit. You know, they, but they walk, they're active, they're, they're not a sedentary society. Uh, they but I always also, see them in you know, cafes. But, but you know, look how they, 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 the same with the Italians, they'll eat, they, they don't eat breakfast really. Maybe they'll have a tiny nibble of a muffin or a croissant, and a, a couple of shooters of coffee. They get really jacked on coffee, they get through, you know, maybe they'll take a nip of something. Maybe around one o'clock in the afternoon, they knock off for a couple of hours and eat a huge motherfucking meal <laughs> and a lot of wine. 
Then they go back to work, and they work till like 7 or 8 or 9 sometimes. Then they have maybe a light supper, you know, generally speaking, we're talking average. Um, then a very light supper. You know, they're not sitting down and doing a, it all again. It's all about either lunch or dinner. You know, so they're really eating only one big meal a day. A friend of mine went to uh, the and Lambert. they're not eating deep fried fucking macaroni, you know, <laughs> you know, deep fried right. macaroni it's and good cheese, though. It's or so good though. you know, g- g- cheeseburgers between uh, donuts, or uh, you know, they don't do that. A buddy of mine went to the Lamborghini factory. He, uh, you know, my friend Bud, who owns that show, rides. They filmed the construction of a Lamborghini, and he came back. The first thing he said is, those fucking people know how to live. He goes, let me yeah. tell you something. First of all, they, they go to work about 10, 10.30. No one's there at like 7 a.m. They get in. They work for a little bit. Then they eat a spectacular lunch where they have chefs come in and make them the most incredible pasta. And then they sleep for a couple hours. Then they come back in, and they work for a couple more hours. Awesome. And then they're done. No one's working like 12 hours That's days awesome. at the Lamborghini right. factory. They're just artists making these incredible... Why can't we... Is it possible to sustain 300 million people and have that sort of a work ethic? It's because, God damn, this would be a way better place. Yeah. You know, for a regular job. I mean, it, you okay. could, and you, if you're working on your own shit, you should be able to do whatever you want. A lot of something I ask all the time, you know, my wife's Italian, as you know, and, and I spend a lot of time there, and I look around at, you know, guys in their 20s and 30s, and, and, and I'm... How do, how do you live? I'm constantly asking myself, how do you live this way? Who's giving you money? Nobody seems to really, people do work hard in Italy, but you just tend to not see it. Um, and you're having this big, <laughs> big motherfucking lunch every day, and I mean, maybe a little gelato at four o'clock in the afternoon. Mm. You're getting your weeks of vacation a year. You know, in, Fr- in France and in Italy too, you know, you get sick in the middle of the night, you, you pick up a phone and call a doctor, and like 15 minutes later, some, some, Young intern arrives on a, on a on a motor scooter and shoots you up with whatever drugs you need to feel better at your house. And it's like like free or close to free. They don't even take tips. It's it's fucking nuts. Wow. They come to your house. They will come to your house. Old doctor bag and just can you imagine this? You know, and they come quick. <sighs> That's what happens when you have a small culture. When you have a culture of too many millions of people, you have the diffusion of responsibility thing. You, the numbers are too big, and there's no way you could rock that. You I don't know, never yeah, rock that. I don't know. Listen, I still to, to the, I don't know how they do it, but they do. Their priorities are very, very different. But I'll tell you, quality of life does not suck. Does not suck. And how many people live there? Total. I don't know. I don't know. It's not that many, right? I don't know. Uh, you ask me, population of France know. or Italy? <laughs> <laughs> So is it like a couple million each? What is it? I have no idea. It's not Why like a it's I not like a major idea. American city, right? I, I just think, think this there is, are countries in Europe with fewer people than than New York City. That's for sure, thing. for sure. Yeah. I mean, New York City is the most amazing city on the planet, but I just think that any time you jam that many people in one spot, you're asking for you're asking for some unnatural reactions. <laughs> you know? I don't know. I'm I'm fascinated by how well New York works. It's, it's incredibly efficient. I mean, by and large. Just watching taxis, like one of the things I love doing in New York is driving. Everyone else hates to drive in New York. I love driving in New York. I love how traffic, these cars should be smacking up against each other, particularly the way the taxis drive when they're bombing up, you know, bombing up an avenue, looking to hit the lights, changing lanes without uh, even, you know, touching their directionals. There's something really um, mystically cooperative about the way it all works. There's an ebb and flow to New York City traffic that when you, you get up in, in, you know, into that wave, it's... Like birds in the dusk sky. Nice. Yeah. And those big waves, when birds yeah. fly in those big waves and they don't hit each other. 
Yeah. Coming from like downtown when you hit every light, that's. I've been hit by cabs thing. though. I used to drive in New York. Cabs hit me twice and they bolted both times. Those fucks. I've been hit by I've been hit by cabs. I've been in a cab and been t boned twice. Oh, in in, in like three days. God Whoa. damn. Twice in three days. Having never been involved in anything like that, twice in three days a few years back. And, wow. Uh, was it both on the same side or two double sides and it evened you out? Or? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I just got out and jumped into another cab. You know, it was one of those things. No Holy one was hurt. shit. So it was a light T-bone. Well, it was a... Nobody was driving away. You know, one, Actually, one guy did drive away, but, you know, on rims with... It was a stolen car and there were... <laughs> the guy had a, clearly, it appeared to be a stolen car because the guy got out of there awful quick on on rims. Uh, New York City is just such a fascinating experiment to stack people on top of each other, all in this one place, and have all you know pretty much anything you need right there. Do you do you, do you own a restaurant? No, no, no. I I was a chef at a restaurant for many years. I'm still involved with them in a I don't know what. When was the last so, time you were in the weeds? Eleven years. Eleven years. Yeah, it's been 11 years. Is he in the weeds? Did you just give him shop talk? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's been 11 years since I've been on the line regularly, since since I've had to show up and actually work a station every day. That was a a fun show when you did go back um, to uh, your your New York City restaurant. How do you say it? Leal's? Leal's. And yeah, well, you 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 come come to uh, terms very quickly with your own mortality and uh, your limitations. you know, I tried to work my old double shift. I did work my old double shift, um, and I made it. But, you know, I think it was 54, 53 when I went back and did that show. And uh, I'd been away for almost 10 years. Um, it is like a riding a bicycle in that you you could still do it. But your brain, when you're a chef, I, I think your brain starts to turn to mush in your late 30s. You become less smart, less fast, less able to 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 do you know twelve, thirteen things at the same time. Your that brain is starts what, to fry. That is a big part of what being a chef is not just about the artistry of preparing the food, but of juggling all these it's different mostly, things, and timing is, them. That's eighty percent of it. I mean, even the great artists, the the, the great chefs, um, they're great chefs because they're able to choose people, make personal and professional relationships with those people, such that they can execute their vision, their artistic vision, again and again and again, exactly the same every single day, rain or shine. And working in high tension, close quarters, everybody yeah, So you're talking about a leader. A chef, a chef is, is, a, is a cook who leads. And, and uh, a great chef is one who is both uh, someone who's really creative and has a, for lack of a better word, artistic style or vision or something to say. But the ability to inspire loyalty and, and good performance uh, in others uh, is key, absolutely. You know, you can be the best, best cook in the world. If you can't inspire others to execute that, you ain't worth shit. I never got this from any other show before I watched your show. Before I watched your show, I got, oh, that guy cooks good food. <laughs> I really did. I mean, I just, I, I'm compartmentalized. I don't, I don't have enough room in my brain for everything you know i can't focus on everything so i'd see certain things and i learn as little as i need to know oh i like this kind of food oh that tastes good oh that guy's a good cook awesome eat his food i never thought about it in, in terms of the, the the complexity or the the effort that goes into it i really never thought about it that much until your show that's why it was so fascinating to me it's hard it's hard on glamorous work you know so by the time the chef becomes the chef that you know by the time you know their name chances are they're not working the line anymore but that they spent 
most of their adult lives uh, standing there doing something that is very similar in many ways to work in a production line in, a, in an auto factory. You know, you put in the nuts and the balls in the same places presumably every time and just as well. And then one guy pops out like a Wolfgang Puck or a, the, 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 the Emerald dude. Had his own fucking sitcom. Well, they, yeah. you know, guys like Emerald didn't pop out, actually. I mean, he, that, that's a guy who worked his ass off for a really long time uh, in restaurants, became well-known, was offered a show, wasn't particularly good at it. He had one show after another fail. And the network stuck with him, and he's, more importantly, he's stuck with it. And he, he created a very, he became a very improbable, you know, superstar. Uh, you know, if you look at those early shows, it's just... You know, he does everything, so many things wrong uh, as far as what you expect of a classic, you know, TV-friendly guy. You know, he's got the thick accent. He's kind of a little awkward up there. That was really charming, and he really, audiences liked that. But, but you know, he worked his ass off getting there. He didn't just sort of, he, he wasn't like me, an overnight success guy. <laughs> you know, he, he was drilling away for years. But it, what I'm what I meant by it is that all of a sudden he's forced into the public consciousness that he's launched like Emeralds. Like there's a, there's a few guys. There's like the Wolfgang Pucks. There's if you're not paying attention, these are the guys that you hear about. If you're not paying attention, well, because they're you know they're both guys who've been around a long time and done really important things both off TV and and on TV. Um, but it's interesting that he's they love him for his personality. So like your personality is so good, we're gonna ask you to fake it now. It's really interesting being a sitcom. Well, for for a, for a long time, you know, chefs, a lot of chefs got into the business because they were awkward. They felt awkward. They they, they, they were shit at words, or generally don't didn't feel comfortable in a straight business environment. Uh, chefs are the kind of running away from something. They they sense something about themselves that 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 said all all of the things that tell you subconsciously bad communicator. You know, shouldn't be out there talking to regular people on a regular basis, trying to do normal business. Those are things that drove people to cook, and yet suddenly they find themselves, you know, with media coaches and people trying to train them to be themselves on camera, and it's a it's, it's a huge industry and and uh, a strange strange one. Yeah, you. I, I read a quote once where you said that uh, the 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 guys that got into becoming chefs were the second smartest sons. <laughs> Well, traditionally in European culture, you know, if the family could only afford to send one kid to college, they'd pick the smartest son and they'd invest what little money they had in that enterprise. The other one would join the family business or go go to hotel school to be to learn. You'd learn to be an apprentice to some craft, you know, some trade. And for a lot of people, that was hotel school. So all, a lot of the great chefs, they came out of that that kind of situation. And certainly when I started cooking, it was the... The misfits who ended up in the restaurant business, you know, life hadn't exactly turned out the way they'd expected, or maybe there's a, a quick, you know, a, a temporary, you know, you could, you know, there's always a job for you if 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 you you're presentable, uh, reasonably intelligent. There's always a job for you on the floor of a restaurant uh, as a waiter, and um, you no take matter, joy in that, though, right? You take joy in being one of the misfits. Oh, I mean, it's why I got in the business. It was running away with the circus. It was uh, <laughs> fellow misfits and refugees who, who really just couldn't hack it anywhere else. Ended up in this this enterprise. Um, See, that was the first time I'd ever seen it or heard it described like that. I was listening to you talk about it. I'd never thought of working in a kitchen to be like that. Yeah, well, <laughs> it was a lot of fun. I mean, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I think. Uh, 
how many people have worked in restaurants at one point or another in life. It is an education. It's one of the things I love. The, there's so many things to love about it that are special about it. You see people again and again. I used to see uh, these guys. They come out of like the mountains of Afghanistan, like or uh, the tribal areas of of Pakistan. You know, really, um, you know, conservative background. Uh, Never been any city until they came to New York. They're working in a restaurant as bus boys. Four weeks later, it's that motherfucker, cocksucker, son of a bitch, you know, rat bastard. You know, they they basically have immediately adopted sort of the the worst of New York culture as a, a, a speech. But they're also you get so smart about about human behavior when you're a bus boy or a waiter. You see so much of it. Um, it's like being a bartender. You learn way more about human nature than you really want to learn. You know, uh, you didn't get, sign up to be a psychiatrist, but in the or an enabler, or a doctor. But in the end, that's kind of what you become when if you're a bartender with regulars. So I think people in the restaurant business get this really unique view of the world, perspective on the rest of the world. Yeah, it is a unique position to be a bartender, to be the sober person serving everyone drinks while they're all just falling apart and it, talking to it, you. It gets to some. It gets to some. I could use one. It gets to some people. I knew a bartender who, uh, I'd be drinking with him. I'd do my shift drink with him after after I worked a lunch service, and this guy was telling me, you know, after 10, 12 years in the business, I don't know if I could do this much longer, man. I just don't know if I could do it. And I said, why? He says, watch this. He takes three glasses and I guess he presses them in the sponge, rins them with with uh, with kosher salt, uh, and puts them under the bar. This old lady comes in, sits down. I like a salty dog, you know. He he pours his salty dog. She drinks it. Uh, she orders another. He has a second glass for her. Uh, she drinks it. Then she gets up. She says, "Okay, that you know that's enough for me." Gets up, makes it halfway to the door. Looks at the ground. Second thoughts goes back to the bar, orders a third. Point is, he had the three glasses ready. He knew this is a this woman is an alcoholic. Okay, <laughs> I am helping her on her way <laughs> to, to her ultimate destruction, and I just I can't hack it. You know, but I, I have too many customers like this. You know. Well, ultimately, if you're in the bar every night, you know, bars are great once a week. Bars are great once a month. If you can, you know, once a month, if you stay healthy yeah. and you're feeling good, your immune system's up, you've been eating vitamins and eating well, you just get fucked up. Let's do it. Come on, everything's good. But you're doing that every night. Oh, you know what'll cure you of the nightclubs real fast is working in a nightclub. And I worked Absolutely. in a nightclub and that was, I will never, you know, never again. You know, any place where it's like, dung, dung, dung in the background, yeah. I'm already out the other door. Yeah. Yeah, I did uh, some uh, security work at a concert center in, in, in uh, Massachusetts, Great Woods. You got to see people at like Neil Young concerts mm -hmm. and just people fucked up in the crowd. I would, I would never want to be a part of anything like that. Every, I knew that at like 19. I'm like, I got to get the fuck out of here. This place I worked at, they were sued like two, three times a week, you know, which you, I guess you, you are when you're in the nightclub business because there's always some boneheads you know, who come in, you know, pick a fight. Uh, bouncers throw them out already. There's a lawsuit. It doesn't mean it's a credible one, but people are going to be suing you. Your your your, uh, your competition are going to be <laughs> suing you. Uh, the fire department is going to be harassing you. It's just brutal. brutal it's amazing brutal. that people can sell alcohol at all. It's amazing. It's amazing, you know, that, that people can afford to have bars. They can afford to to sell alcohol at all because you would think that people getting drunk would cause so many fucking problems they could be sued for. Just it, it was it was an education. Uh, I think it was like two years at this very busy New York nightclub, 
and just the stuff that people would leave in the in the in the bathrooms or try to flush down the toilet. We had the, the night cleanup guy would always come by the kitchen with his discoveries of the night before. You know, it was, it was a fucking artificial limb, a fucking artificial limb. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! And, and it was always, the women's rooms were actually always, always worse, worse yeah. way worse. You know, people were like just doing. I mean, it's just it's incredible. You know, horrifying. You know, museum in there it tells a story of human behavior that you just don't want to know. It's fucking alcohol, man. Yeah. Wind them up and set them loose. Yeah. I had a buddy who was uh, did his residency in Miami, and he said on Friday and Saturday nights, people would come in with light bulbs up their asses, <laughs> just just impossible things. You know, just mostly shoved up their asses, bullet holes, people just getting just popping off. It really, truly is amazing that you can sell alcohol and you can't sell weed. It's a, what a what a beautiful thing they've done. Yeah, it makes no sense at all. So Plus, the, we make such, we grow such good weed in this country. It would be a huge and major export. I mean, who do, who grows better weed than us? Nobody. There's no better botanist than these Southern California assholes. These guys, assholes, I say with all love. This, what they've done done now is incredible. Look at this shit. This is a, a marijuana electric cigarette. Perfect for plane bathrooms. You could smoke this on a plane. Wow. It's one of those electronic cigarettes and it's got weed in it. They're, they're fucking scientists. Wow. They're taking it to the next level. But Science them, is great. But it's amazing. But unfortunately, they're still getting arrested for it. There's still people that are getting... Apparently, Obama said that he was only going to go after people who violate both federal and state law. Right. But I don't know if that's been... It's probably pretty easy to violate state law too. Yeah, I mean, I think we should we should if if we're going to do it, if we're going to allow people to smoke weed, that we should be making money off it as a fuck yeah as a nation. Yeah, yeah. We should right be now, selling selling serious weight to like Europe and and. Uh, do you ever go to Mexico? Uh, yeah, I love Mexico. Do you I ever go to like border towns? Uh, I've been. I mean, like, what do you, what do you, like, the situation? Well, we just, actually, we just, right we, just, we just did a show. We just did a show there. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy. You know what we would consider apocalyptic violence. I mean, I think more people have been killed in Mexico during the drug wars than than, you know, I think both Gulf Wars and Afghanistan. I mean, there's some spectacular number of people as far slaughtered as down there in in, in, in American troops, huge yeah. numbers. Um, what you know, I have not a clue what to do. Uh, you know, it doesn't help that. You know, we're selling them guns, uh, but but I, there is no doubt that that uh, people that they would get them from somewhere. Um, I've never ha I've never seen it. The, the the many times I've been in Mexico, you know, I. What's your favorite place in Mexico? Oh, I love Puebla. I love. You, uh, you see, you've never City. seen any drug violence at all. I have not seen up close uh, drug violence. I have been in really drug. I've been in like super druggy neighborhoods in in favelas in Brazil and elsewhere. But, because but not in Mexico. I was with the local dealer. Right, I guess right, that's what right. I'm saying. I mean, Could, but does that work in Mexico? Could you do something? Would you could be, you safely go to a cartel yeah. a cartel neighborhood with a cartel guy? Man, the level Ooh. of violence is so spectacular there. I wouldn't want to be complicit. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm not, if you're you're currently you know, chopping people's heads off by the by the dozens. You know, it's another. You know, it's one thing. Have you ever been it, around someone like that in another country? Inadvertently, I've met people. I have met people and done scenes of my show with people who have done very, very bad things in their lives. No question about it. Um, they were not currently at the time of the show. Other than, you know, there were some low-level guys, for sure, who clearly were drug dealers. They said as much. They said, could you please shoot just this side of the street, because this side is my drug operation. Well, you make, you make, uh, 
you make concessions, compromises, you know, morally and, and otherwise when you take advantage of a situation like that. The only way you're going to shoot the neighborhood is to, to have a, a, a local drug dealer hold your hand. Uh, that's what you do. Or you, or you choose not to, depending. You know. And in Mexico, the level of violence is so spectacular, and they see presumably the major dealers out there are killing large numbers of people in, on a regular and ongoing basis. I would feel bad. I, it's, that's not an arrangement I'd enter into. And would you have to go into some sort of a, a similar arrangement if you were ever to go to the Congo? Would you have to good make question. an arrangement with the rebels? Good, good, good question. Well, who, who's the rebels? So there's, yeah. there's a, it's a. What does that even there mean? There are a lot what of different. Saying? The rebels. Well, there are a lot of. Well, there are there are various militias. Yeah, uh, for sure. Uh, yeah, well, you got to ask yourself that all the time. But in, in the same way, when really when people are trying to be really nice to you in countries where you're not free to speak your mind, Cuba would be an example. Uh, you know, China, uh, up near the Tibetan border. You, now, you, when you, were you, have to, you have to understand when you're talking to people on camera who've let you into their homes and they fed you and they've got, you know, you're, they've, they've, and they've been maybe a little more frank with you on a personal level than, than they are probably supposed to as government functionaries. Um, when they're good to you and everything they said was going to happen happened the way it was supposed to and they, they, didn't, they weren't too clumsy and they didn't try to ham-fist you, basically, if we get to go back to New York. They have to stay there. So if I go back and, and start criticizing as severely as I might, it's something I always have to weigh. All the people who were good to me in these countries, they're going to be in a very bad place if I go back to New York and make this really make this show all about China, Tibet. I may have my opinions on it, but for the sake of the people I leave behind, I'm not shooting my mouth off. I can say what I want about China anytime I want. And, you have and to I suffer no consequences. Anyone who was ever nice to us will be... Suspect if I were to start really going off on a tangent on the issue on the show that these people helped me make. Same in Cuba. You, you, you do make certain compromises because people are as straight with you as they can be. Um, they do the best by you. They're people who are nice and with senses of humor is trying to do the best they can, whether you agree with their system or, or despise it. Um, at the end of the day, you got to ask yourself, do I really want to put, you know, it might make more entertaining or truthful television, but they're going to be in a fucking cell for the crime of being nice to me or being honest with me. That's something we got to ask ourselves all the time. Well, I know you couldn't put that in the show, like the show on Cuba, but is there, anything, the that you could, is there anything you could talk about? Well, I, I could have gone on and on and on about, you know, the history of the regime and what they've done. Right, right, Many right. of them incredibly unpleasant, to say the least. Um, I didn't make the show about that. I kept it a very, I tried very hard to keep the focus on, does it look pretty? Is it worth looking at? Is the food good? Are the people nice? They were. Um, really tried to avoid any politics at all. But what was amazing. What's political is it's always political when you sit down to eat because the fact that they're not eating much beyond rice and beans that is already a political statement. You know that says a lot more about a culture than they may want you to see. It's dangerous information, but but there it is. So were they allowed to complain about that at all? Were they cautious about doing that? Did they make sure that they, they didn't say anything? They could no, they, let, the us shoot, they, they let us shoot pretty much anything. Anything we asked to shoot, they let us shoot. I, I think they, trust, they clearly trusted us. They saw us show other parts of the world in a relatively non-judgmental way, and, and they foolishly or not, shrewdly or foolishly, there will be differences of opinion, I'm sure, 
for whatever reason, they trusted us to come and they pretty much let us wander around shooting. What kind of clearance they were, do you have they to get tried, from the of course. They, you know, there was definitely concern over who we'd be talking to and what they might say. But you know, every you know everybody has to be careful about what they say. There, everybody changes their behavior when they talk to you to a certain extent. You don't bring up certain subjects because they're going to worry. Does the government have any say? Do they do they pull you aside? Do they say what is it? What, how are you going to show Cuba? We had to arrange Cuba? all of this through, through through the government. I mean, nothing happens. You don't go wandering around Cuba with a television crew without the government become involved, right? Whether you know it or not. But like, did you get involved in any of the questions that they asked about the? Because you're you obviously have a major me, creative influence. No, on the show. they don't. They don't. We're not making any show ever where they the nation or the local police uh, or any other person has final cut or approval over what we're showing. No, you you obviously have approval over what we're allowed to shoot, but how we edit that back in New York and what we say, you know, you're on your own. It's too late. done. You signed a release. That ain't ever 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 going to happen. Did they express any concern about any of that? It seems like, I mean, Cuba's they were pretty very, touchy. They were very, I think they're very, being very shrewd about tourism. They, they understand what it is that people want to see in Cuba, which is the old Cuba of, of uh, you know, Godfather 2. That's yeah. what we want to see, and it's still there. And really? they've been really smart about not fucking that up. So <laughs> these aren't stupid, unsophisticated people. You're commie functionaries, okay? They're... They they understand they have a problem. They have, they I think everybody understands that the the regime is, you know, it's things are going to change. I think people everybody's kind of holding their breath in the country, waiting to see what happens next. And I think what happens next is like completely and blindingly obvious to everyone. I mean, Castro dies, they open everything up. Pretty pretty damn quick. Yeah. yeah. And then everything gets better, way better for the Cuban people. Sort of. Sort of. We can, yes, I assume. You're going to lose certain things, though. You're going to lose those guys arguing. You know, it's easy for me to say I really to don't want to see a brand new Holiday Inn on the waterfront of, of uh, the Malecon in Havana because it's one of the most beautiful stretches of, of anywhere, anywhere. Um, but that's easy for me to say. I'm not Cuban. I didn't lose my home. Uh, you know, I, you know I, I, I have to say, I've, I, I, I had no moral problems going to Cuba. Let's put it that way. Um, but I've since met a lot of Miami Cubans who, who take a very different view of going to Cuba. Um, and it has been pointed out to me, one guy came up to me, and we were shooting at his restaurant. It was just a complete coincidence after the, our, our Cuba show had aired. This guy was pissed. Uh, it had clearly been a big issue at his house. Um, he was really struggling to contain his anger and be courteous, which he was incredibly courteous. And with it, he said, I just need you to look at this picture. And he takes me back and shows a picture of his dad who ran a, basically, a, a, he sold fish. So I'd always thought that, you know, the people who lost their homes and, and ran off to Miami, you know, were all, you know, the rich, the, you know, the bastards, basically. You know, this was a, what this man was telling me. He said, my father was an ordinary businessman, you know, who'd worked hard, you know, selling fish, catching fish and selling fish. And they took his business and ended his livelihood. Um, that's something, you know, it, it was a very hard show to balance, let's put it that way. Oh, I'd imagine. It's got to be so strange to just hop from one culture to the next, one unique insight into this totally different environment, and then another one just as extremely different. We're really hoping to shoot in Libya in January. We'd hope yeah, to shoot I, in September. Yeah, you talked to me about this at yeah. the UFC. We want it so bad. I mean, I, ideally, we would have been there when they got Gaddafi, you know. Um, 
but I, I have friends there who've been in and out. Uh, people we've worked with uh, in some of the some of the dicier places. We work with some very interesting security guys, and uh, some of them have been working in Libya lately. <laughs> and we were getting sort of dispatches of what life's like there. And these guys were, these are hardened professionals who've been around. They've been in a lot of wars. They've seen a lot of conflicts. Um, in many ways, you would you you would probably call them mercenaries in an earlier day. Uh, but they were really sentimental about Libya. Like it's what they were like, dude. It's awesome what's happening here. You should come. You know, it's like all these young people from all over the world, you know, of Libyan background, they're all coming here and like welding machine guns on their on their pickup trucks. And there's this really magical thing, you know, I'm actually thinking of, you know, pitching in. Whoa. Um, apparently, you know, it's nice to see the bad guys actually lose, right? It is, if, if it's that clear, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's exactly what I'm getting at. Where, you yeah. know, not a lot of people would look at Gaddafi and say, well, that's... That, I would be unhappy to see his head being kicked across a public square. I wouldn't be unhappy seeing that. You know, I don't think. Yeah, Gaddafi is about as big a piece of shit in the world of you know rulers as you can get. He's a he's a nice villain. He wears yeah. a good black hat. It's, it's a it's a feel good for everybody, and and they're doing it the, basically. That I mean, there's NATO support, but they're basically doing it themselves. Do you remember that guy, General Wesley Clark. Remember that guy who ran for yes, president sure. a while back. Yep. He predicted all of this in 2007 on it was one, of, one of those CNN or one of those fucking shows where he got on and he, he talked about the, the United States' agenda as far as acquiring mm-hmm. you know, um, natural resources all over the yep. world. And Libya was right in the pile. Libya, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan. It was all these different countries were, and he d- described it all in 2007. And slowly but surely, all these things are getting implemented. I think it, I think what what we're seeing in Egypt and Libya and Syria and uh, Tunisia, uh, I think actually what we're seeing is something we didn't project, we didn't predict, we we didn't make it happen. It's happening. It's in many ways frightening to us. I mean, I, I think the fact that all these governments are toppling is not necessarily good for our American business interests. I happen to think it's a really good thing. I'm happy to see it. Like I don't really care what kind of psychos take over. Egypt. Just the fact that, you know, even if bad guys end up running Egypt again, the fact that they could, it was possible to get that they could topple account. those particular bad bastards who'd been around forever. It was unthinkable a year ago to your average Egyptian that their government, that things would ever change, ever, in their lifetime or their children's lifetime. And it wasn't unthinkable that these dynasties would ever fall. So it's really kind of awesome. Just the fact that it sends a message that it can happen, you know, I think it's a good one. I don't think it falls into the plan. You know, we're waiting for that big payday from Iraq that we're supposed to. You know, are we supposed to be pumping their oil straight into American coffers right now? That ain't going to happen. I think uh, you know, it depends on who you're paying attention to or who you want to believe when it comes to that world. But you know, there's a lot of people that believe that we've hit some sort of a peak oil stage, and what they're trying to do is just control all the areas where, which will be absolutely necessary when oil gets to the point where we're going to have to ra- start rationing things. We're doing a really bad job then because the Chinese <laughs> are basically snapping it all up. I mean, everywhere you go in Africa now, it's like, oh, look at the nice new bridge we have. The Chinese bought and paid for it. Yeah. Everywhere you go, like, there's, it's amazing. Every major infrastructure uh, development that you see in places like Liberia, um, other African countries you've been to, it's like, oh, those, those really thoughtful Chinese were here. Thoughtful <laughs> <laughs> Chinese. And they bought all our oil. We They'll need this. 50% of the world's oil, I think, in like another... Maybe it's ten years soon. Holy shit! China alone will need 
when I first went to China, it was like everybody's on bicycles and there's cars. Second time I went, it's like 50-50. Now it's just cars, cars, cars as far as... And how much time has this been? Ten years. Wow. It's, so it's just accelerating in China. It is. You know, what do they say on The Simpsons? Welcome, future masters. <laughs> so future it, overlords, we welcome you. <laughs> so is it, is it just the, the, the way they've, uh, they handle business is different in China now? Because they were much more strict as far as commerce and things, right? They had much more rules. Well, they've, they've, had, a, you know, they've had communism on their necks. You right. Know? But, but, I mean, in a lot of ways, it's like, wait a minute, you want to make China like a, a, a competitive free market? It's like, are you out of your minds? They'll kill us. Then, then they're really dangerous because there's a lot of them. They work really hard. They, they, they've been put, they, they, they're willing to work to get things. Uh, that's already an advantage over, you know, a, a but, you know, we're entitled. We feel entitled. We've times have been good for us. You know, I grew up of a generation where we were auto, we were taught that automatically, you know, our lives would be better than our parents. I took that as religious, you know, dictum. That was straight from God. You know, okay, I was disappointed somewhat, but I basically I'm lazier than most of the people. I I was raised to be lazier, and I am lazier than the great majority of people you see in China and India. Um, for instance, who, you know, see, you know, it's no accident. You see these people taking double majors, you know, um, their parents were rice farmers, you know, and, 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 and the kids are now in university ferociously competitive. Um, you know, that's what, that's what it's about, the desire for, for a different life. We, we got that life already. So it's going to be hard to, to... Dangerous competitors. Well, it's, they're already our landlords, so it's really, it's, it, you know what, in, in, the, in the world of the future, you know, inter, the, the more we intermarry with the Chinese, the more attractive our kids are going to be, as far as I'm saying. <laughs> and, and we're definitely going to be eating better. Right. So how bad can it be? Well, it could be, well, you could be one of those factory workers at Concom that hits that suicide net. <laughs> In a, a, a drunken leap off the top of the building. You know, they have those nets all around the building to keep yeah. people from killing themselves. It could get rough. Have you, have you been to China? No, never it's, been. You know, you go to China, certain major chain hotels. Like you go to a Hilton in, in, in New York. It's like not the, to my mind, it's not the greatest hotel ever, okay? You go to a Hilton in Shanghai, it is fucking luxe, okay? Any, any chain hotel in, in, in Shanghai or Beijing, a Western chain hotel, the, the level of excellence and technical superiority required or expected there is so higher than in New York. They just, at that level, the, the sort of people who, who, who would stay at one of these hotels in Shanghai are a lot richer and more demanding than their equivalent in New York. So the level wow. of luxury and development that you see in places like China where, you know, Jesus, you know, this is a dysfunctional government, you would think. It's, a, it's fucking, they're communists, for fuck's sake. You know, how come they've got this, you know, great rail system? You know, how come... Their hotels are nicer than ours. How come internet coverage is better? How come I can get us, you know, five bars on my cell phone anywhere in China? You know, like the deepest, darkest valley, and like <laughs> ass end of nowhere. You know, you 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 start to get this terrible. You know, I'm an I'm an American. I'm a New Yorker. We're the Amer <laughs> greatest country in the world. I believe this absolutely and positively. But you know, at the end of the day, it's like I I, I just start thinking to myself. If you know that you know the New York subway system, you know, to say that. You know that the New York City subway system is certainly not the best in the world. It's idiotic to pretend that it is, you know? Well, we held the crown somewhere 20, 30, whatever years ago it was, whatever it was, yeah. where we were the shining light of civilization. 
was it 1970? Whatever year it was. But we still have like the the, the great you know the the great weapons. We we are the most powerful nation on earth, and I think largely based on on the really the the danger of our culture. You know, people when introduced to rock and roll will eventually topple their governments. I think. <laughs> it hasn't worked here, but but abroad. Wait till Rick Perry gets in office. No, I, th- I think our, our great cultural, uh, you know, export has been you know uh, rock and roll, rap music. Uh, clearly, yeah. um, it makes people want to, you know, whatever it is they see, they 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 kind of want in one form or another. They kind of want some form of that. So, in your experience in all these other countries, and well, when you you see all these different. Um, you know, regimes getting toppled. You don't think there's any American influence in these things happening? I don't think we're that organic? good. Really? You don't I, think the CIA I, is that good? I've, I've actually, I, I'm a CIA nerd. I'm one <laughs> of those like, like I'm not a gamer, but I'm a guy who, about 25 years ago, started reading up on the Kennedy assassination. Got completely obsessed with that, and then it just, I'm, I'm one of these guys. I read footnotes, and a footnote leads me to another book, to another book. You know, I disappeared down the rat hole for 10 years reading. Everything. So I'm really. Did you ever uh, read Best Evidence? Uh, yeah. Um, I, you know, my my feeling is we're just if history has taught us anything, and if you read all of the documents from all of the controversial periods of CIA uh, operations, we we just don't seem to be very good at these things. <laughs> and and everybody rats and writes a book about it immediately after. It happened. <laughs> so if it went well, you can be sure you'd be reading about it, or it would have been leaked to a magazine by now. You know, so I just I don't think I, that's we, so sad. I don't think we're that good, uh, and I, I, I certainly don't think we have much of an of an appetite for controlling the universe. I think we're we're, we're doing it. We seem to be work very working very hard to hold the dam. Um, so you think the speculation about the, the CIA being involved, like they're probably just very, very peripherally involved, and there's just shit happening no matter I'm what. I'm sure there's, there's, there are upset. major CIA operations going on right now, without without doubt. But I think this notion that there's an office somewhere where the whole fate of the world is, is sort of decided, <laughs> what countries are going to invade over the next 10 years, uh, we're just not that good, and we're not definitely not that secure. There's always, you know, three people know about something. It's the greatest argument about the Kennedys. You know the 9/11 conspiracy theory idiots, um, the Kennedy assassination, uh, the Looney Tunes. Um, if basically in this country, if three more than three people know about a thing, one of them is going to be on the stand crying about it. The other guy's going to be writing a book about it, and maybe two guys will keep their mouths shut. I think today, I don't think during the time of the Kennedy assassination, it would have been that difficult to hide things. I think uh, things were less, much less transparent back then than were. Today. Yeah, but his, that's what's great about history. You know, eventually, if you're willing to wait around, Somebody to my view, clean. to my view, if you're willing to wait around, all, every boring, grim detail will, will will eventually come out. And and if you, as in the Kennedy assassination, someone, I, I don't know who said it, they described the mafia theory as the halfway house for failed conspiracy theorists. It's like after you've decided the CIA didn't do it, the mafia you know, did the FBI it. did it. It's like, yeah, well, okay, well, it was, it was the mafia, you know. And there's, of course, there's all this great evidence to support that theory, but 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 ultimately, I'm I'm of the Oswald got a lucky shot. Uh, really? Theory? Wow. No. I I read best evidence, and that's one of the reasons why I first started believing that there was some sort of a conspiracy. That was uh, one of the one of the first things that I saw that made me really reconsider. But later in life, the thing that really got me was the Northwoods document. If you never heard of that, it's something that they drafted in the 1960s or 1960 where. Uh, 61 or 62, where Kennedy actually vetoed it, and all the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Joint Chiefs of Staff signed it. 
and then we're gonna have fake American uh, terror attacks. We're gonna get a, a, a plane. They were gonna f have a drone plane explode it and say a bunch of people died. And they were gonna attack Guantanamo Bay. And they were gonna arm Cuban friendlies to attack Guantanamo Bay because we wanted to go to war. Was with it, this Cuba. was uh, this was this uh, Cuban Missile Crisis era. Yeah, we were, there, yeah. there were there were so many complete. See, this is what it, to me what's interesting about Kennedy's assassination uh, conspiracy. It's a there was so much it, wacky shit going on around that time. So much of it embarrassing, um, criminal, scary, funny, really silly going on at that time. That in fact the least interesting thing about the entire you know, big picture of the Kennedy assassination is the actual assassination itself because what everybody else was up to at the time and covering up was just like right out of a movie. You know, the CIA get his meeting with, you know, Johnny Rosselli and all these like mafia guys to whack out Castro. Uh, you know, uh, there, there was just so much other embarrassing shit going on that in many ways those stories and where they lead are a lot more entertaining and complex and, and fun than, than a story of a guy you know, shooting a president. So if you believe that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone, what do you I think do. about when you see the, the, like the Oliver Stone movie? Does that drive you fucking uh, I, crazy? I, I, it I would have liked the film a lot better um, if they just stuck with a historical record and he invented scenes and characters, you know, which I thought was, as a, as a, as a Kennedy assassination The Donald Sutherland buff, character didn't yeah, exist, right? And, and there were just certain things were just, do mention that the garrison jury was out for like 30 seconds. <laughs> Please mention that Jim Garrison is a man of many interesting local, uh, a man with an interesting past. Let's put it that way. In what, what way? Not a, he did not, uh, not a, a reputation that was debatable, let's put it that way. Um, Which is the, never good. The case was bad. I mean, he put a lot of very interesting stuff together. And there was, and all of it was like fascinating and in a lot of ways a lot of it was was almost more interesting than the, than the, the, there wasn't. I don't believe in the octopus theory. I think you had a lot of really interesting, very spooky characters who'd been doing a lot of really sinister uh, and interesting shit for a long time. Whether or not they were actually involved in the, the Kennedy assassination is almost moot because they were up to some really other wacky stuff. Did the magic bullet theory bother you at all? I think if you talk, and I have talked to. Uh, people who served in combat for a long time. The story of the buddy who gets around through the front of his helmet, it, it, it travels around subcutaneously around the skull and en enters out the back without hurting the guy. Uh, is it, Everybody's got... I, shit happens. Shit happens. I'm, I'm willing to believe the magic bullet theory. I would be willing to believe it except for the fact that they came up with it because a guy got hit with a ricochet under the bridge. And so they had to attribute everything to three shots. And I was like, God, that seems like fucking shifty logic. It's a, I don't to know me. What, it, what they call it, but when you've eliminated all the other suspects, uh, you know, you're left with the likely truth, I think. And I, I, to my satisfaction, I've kind of eliminated the other suspects. Woody Harrelson's dad didn't have any part of it in the grassy <laughs> no. Wasn't he, like, rumored no, to be one of the no. shooters? It's a great, I mean, you know. Wasn't that part yes, of Yes, of course. Yeah. But every, Howard Hunt was supposed to yes. be there. It's like, you know, everybody's there. You know, it's like <laughs> Ronald McDonald is there. Why you know? is that so sexy? Uh, Why is it so I sexy? I wanted to believe People, it yes! so badly. Bigfoot, so bad. Loch Ness Monster, UFOs, yeah. Kennedy, the whole deal. Yeah. Yeah. It's way more fun to think that Lee Harvey Oswald was a patsy. But remember, he was a really interesting guy. If you, I think the book that got it close, got it most right, uh, was a work of fiction, The Libra by Don DeLillo, where it, it really gets inside uh, uh, Oswald's head. I mean, Oswald was a guy who, who 
uh, his favorite show as a teenager was I Led Three Lives about an undercover FBI uh, agent. He was an intelligent, he was a spy junkie. In, in today's world, he would have been a gamer, you know? <laughs> he, he a nutty have, gamer. He wanted to be, he, he, he was a guy who kind of wanted to, to be, uh, to do big things. And, and he tried very hard. He wanted to be super secret KGB agent. He wanted to be super secret, you know, wanted to be a Marine. He probably volunteered to the FBI a couple of times. He was just a guy who wanted to do something big. Um, so I, I don't have a problem buying it. So you had no problem with the allegations of them fixing autopsy photos? I had problems with all of it because I was lost in it for 10 years. But the, the Kennedy family had very good reason to ask for, you know, the brain and I mean, he had Addison's disease, and the implications of, of Addison's disease uh, towards the, the Kennedy history were not favorable. You know, apparently, I don't know, but apparently it has been said that he had multiple bouts of syphilis. This is, you know, you don't want, the family didn't want the president, you know, right. people, they didn't want this part of the record. Multiple there was a lot bouts of, of syphilis, holla at your boy. <laughs> Those uh, are the he, days he, he where took being a president was worth it. He really? took amphetamines in, in large doses at, at, at early at his point. Who knows what he's taking? Did he, he really? Uh, he had a, a doctor, Max Jacobson, I believe. I believe was the name. He did have a doctor who would shoot him with uh, vitamin, I think B12 and amphetamine, according to one of the B12 mixed with speed. That's how that dude was. Really... Not uncommon <laughs> at certain levels. It was a very you know uh, a, sure. a society thing to do back then. That's Although... five hour energy drink. That's what it is. <laughs> B12. And I think a lot of people speed. didn't even know there was he was the original doctor. He was known as Doctor Feelgood, and that's where the name came from. Doctor, I believe it was Doctor Max Jacobson. I, I I don't know. Legendary. Wow. Sort of doctor to the stars back in the Warhol and Kennedy's Warhol. disease. What did it have? To, was it a motor skill thing? What is it? That I don't. I, but, but apparently there were a, there are in the symptoms, the possible symptoms. I think there can be emotional uh, emotional content to the disease. So theoretically, it could have affected his judgment. It was it was unflattering. It, 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 I believe he was in a lot of. This was a guy in a lot of pain too. Yeah, um, supposedly, right? Yeah. But back then, you just didn't want to talk about these things, and and uh, I think a lot of people. Uh, ran around in circles covering things up for their own uh, reasons. And, in fact, most of them had really terrible things to cover up. That back then thing is really fascinating when you think about it. It's not that long ago. I was, listen, know? I was alive. I remember being sent home from school. When Kennedy was when killed? When Kennedy was killed. And, um, yeah. But, I, I, you know, I, I go for the simple explanation much of the time. It's uh, the good move. Um, I, I keep mean, myself. I keep the crazy open. I, I open the door for crazy, because I've seen some things. I leave it open. I, but I, I agree with you. Most of the time, I go with a simple door right. with crop circles and UFOs and the Loch Ness monster and right. Bigfoot. Most of the time, I go for the simple door. People are full of shit, and that story sucks. That's what, how I usually go. But I leave the door for crazy open. You see the new moon landing photos they just released yes, the other yes. day. They look very convincing. Yeah. But you know, nah, if, nah, if, if, I, if I was gonna. Be from a, a company that faked the moon landing. I would definitely fake some pictures about it too. <laughs> Fuck it. <laughs> Fuck it. You know. Well, Richard Branson will be there like within the next five years, right? He'll have a Supposedly. hotel on the moon, no doubt about it. Well, he's definitely going to get people into space, apparently. But it's going to be like for like two hundred thousand dollars or they've something. Built, they've already built. The, we're driving through, I think, New Mexico or Arizona. I forget where, and we're in this tiny little town. And said, Do you know about the airport? The airport they've got going out there. Yeah, so he's built, they built a launch he's built, center? He's built the launch center, I think, down Jesus there. They're ready to go. Christ, <laughs> to go to space. Awesome. And they're selling uh, tickets. I think you can buy your ticket it? already. Would, would you I do it? it? Yeah. Totally. Yeah, you'd have to. Totally. You imagine the view. The view would be 
whatever view that you would get doing like high doses of mushrooms in the dark by yourself probably wouldn't be as spectacular as looking at the earth from 40,000 feet above it or you know more, more than that rather whatever it is when you hit space whatever, that would be 100, good 100 miles what is it what is it when you're 200 miles I'll let them beta test it a little bit whatever this. the space shuttle is when you see that those photos when you get the full circle of the earth I mean that just must be I would totally do that. Life changing. Two hundred grand's like wait, you know that's a it's little a little money. steep. Yeah. Can the Travel Channel cough that up for a percentage no. of DVD sales? Are you kidding me. That's <laughs> half a season for us. <laughs> yeah, you 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 supplement your income though doing um, uh, speakings too, right? You go and do these I have speeches. newfound respect for your profession, uh, sir. <laughs> I basically do stand up for. Meaning, I'm talking about a lot of issues and a lot of things, but yeah. as you know, because we've worked a lot of the same theaters, uh, and I do about forty of them a year. Uh, if you don't get a laugh every 60 seconds, you're, you've got a problem. <laughs> and, well, I would think you would have a lot more levity, and, a lot more room for... It's it, it still, it's, you know, you want to laugh every 60 seconds, and if they don't, if, if not in 60 seconds, the one that comes in two minutes better be really fucking funny, because um, they had to wait for it, and I've really learned a lot of things. I mean, I've done so many gigs now. And I didn't understand. I didn't know it. I didn't realize I'm becoming a stand-up comic. That's awesome. Because I'm, I am, I'm starting it. You know, and you, you, I so totally understand why you know comics. So many comics drink, and, and when you kill, when you have a really good night, I, I come away like depressed, like kind of depressed by it. Really? You know? Right. Uh, the the. The, the 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 pressure of not knowing whether you're going to do well or, it's like being in a ski jump like it's all decided you know how am I going to do on this jump you don't know when the, when the thing's going beep 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 and then before you head down the chute <laughs> you just don't know you know you go in feeling really bad one night and you kill and then another night you go in you're all pumped up you think you're you know I'm 100 percent and it's just like you're out there like ah, gah, gah. <laughs> but but it's just weird just like the bartender I was talking about before you start to learn you know where to lean you know what what word to come down hard on how long to wait and it, it is it is this terrible information that you get <laughs> you know I feel guilty about and why is it terrible because it's been essentially it's manipulative and and when you're interviewed a lot or when you're doing the same routine a lot you know you start to someone will ask you off camera or off stage a question to you know something mm -hmm. That you've just and you're, you're doing bit, you're doing right, bit. Right, right, you know, right, you right. slide into it and right. say, you know, well, I was actually talking about this last night on the stage of the Paps Theater. But you're very humble. You're very humble in the way you you approach things, and that's one of the reasons why you're such an interesting guy, and one of the reasons why your opinion is, is so respected. But when you're uh, when you're talking about this, that it's it, what you're doing is all you're doing is getting the thought to them as efficiently as possible in a method that you're already successful at. It's still what they need. It's what they want to hear. It's just even though you've already answered it exactly this way before, you tend to think there's something wrong with that because it's not honest. But you know the right way to say it. It is the right tool to use. I toured. I basically had an evolving thing. I started out talking, and it became certain things worked, certain things didn't. 
But over time, it would it would become you know it would an hour of solid material. You're okay? a comic, and you had the A, you had the A material, and you had the B material. B material, like I'd go out and it's like nothing but fucking golfers, and it's like oh shit, you know. Then I totally changed up. I mean, I've done casino, I've done casinos with like belligerent, you know, drunks. I mean, I really. How did you get started doing this? I went out. I, I went out on. I was doing a lot of book tours, and the the books, the bookstore crowds are getting bigger and bigger, and so then they start booking me in halls, the bookstore. You know, so I'm basically I'm just looking to sell books. I stand up there, then, and and then I I talk for a while about my book, or I read for my book, and then and then, you know, I sign the book. I started doing talks, uh, while on book tour, and then it, there are people who do this, speakers, bureaus. You know, you want some macroeconomics, you know, macroeconomics uh, guy to, to talk about that, or you know, you need some dick jokes, whatever. You know, a speakers bureau will have someone for you, presumably. You know, um, and and they just hooked me up, and I started. First, I started doing a few corporate gigs, and then theater promoters just started booking me. So I just do theaters now. I think it's the local. I'm sure we work so many of the same places. I'm sure. And and it just suddenly I found myself. Well, you know, I got an hour, and then I do Q&A for another 45 minutes, or until it's not fun. Um, <laughs> a lot of poop jokes. <laughs> but, you know, Q&A I, after, is where the, the but, bits come But, out. you know, I've run up to, this is why I was enjoying your Carlos Mencia shit so much, because, you know, you, run up, you come up to this, uh, uh, this point after two years, you realize, well, I've done all the major cities now with this routine, and it's been quoted and repeated in, in, uh, uh, in the local press. And chances are, if I said it in the first place live at some point earlier in my career, I may have written it or put it in the show. So you reach this point. It's like, oh, shit, I need another completely new hour. And that's hard. It's very hard. That is hard. That's where plagiarism comes from in stand-up comedy. A lot of it comes from desperation. Yeah. You know, they just don't. And then, but in that guy's case, it's a little different. He's just fucking crazy. But some of them, they just need a new hour, and they just get a little, little funky. You know, it's just as funny if you say somebody else said it. You know, like I'll often say, you know, yeah. uh, Raymond Chandler said, and, yeah. and I'll, I'll say the thing. And yeah. it just, it was a really good fucking line. But That's the, why I used it, you know. The spirit of it, though, is different. The spirit of repeating someone and quoting them is very different than claiming it for yourself. Yeah. And that's where it gets tricky, you know. Stand-up comedy is a fucking weird art form, man. It's, it's, if there's any lies at all in it, people are angry at you. You know, if there's any bullshit in it, if there's any fake in it, like that's not even his fucking name. You mean his name's really not Larry the Cable Guy? People will get mad, man. They'll get mad if you're if you're not honest about the whole package. They'll they'll accept a character. I mean, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but if they find that you don't really think the way you're talking on stage is just bullshit. Yeah, I'll tell you though, though the casino I did, Harris Lake Tahoe. And, you know, it was that I never had a crowd like this. You know, they were drunk gamblers. They were already drunk. And they were heck. They were, they were heckler. I've never been heckled other than the occasional vegetarian. But these were just <laughs> drunk ass hecklers. They were just heckling for the. Because there was. That's. You that's know, they were drunk. Do. They were friendly hecklers. Right. Uh, but I just never. I never contended with that, man. That is a. That's a skill you got to learn quick. Yeah, well, I started out um, doing really bad clubs. I did a lot of, uh, I did strip clubs where I did a, I guested at a, uh, a rather emceed a Jack and Jill strip club in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, where the, a guy would strip and a girl would strip. I've done some horrible, horrible places. And when you do a lot of bars and a lot of like comedy nights in bars, you're going to get hecklers. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it's all good. I mean, it's fun. It, it, it's fun, it's exhausting. 
<laughs> it's really exhausting. It. It's a rush for sure. Yeah. Um, when you have the perfect word to say and the the heckler gets shut down and everybody starts laughing, tell me that doesn't feel like the most awesome shit ever. Yeah. That's yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for doing this, man. This was fun as hell. Yeah, I, I could I, do this all night. I really enjoyed it, man. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is uh, this has been a dream come true, man. Thank you very much because uh, I'm a, a huge fan of your show and I, I, I geeked out when I met you in Vegas. So it was cool as fuck having you on the show. Thank you, man. Thank you to the Fleshlight for sponsoring the podcast. If you go to joerogan.net, click on the link for the Fleshlight, enter in the code name Rogan. And you get uh, 15% off the number one sex toy for men. And we got a bunch of new dates. You can find them on Twitter.com slash Joe Rogan. We're coming to Washington, D.C., Denver, Houston, Ontario, California, and New Orleans. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye.